everybody, Angela Bowen here, and today I am bringing you a listener-requested episode. This is not just a listener-requested episode, this is a movie that I'm doing in honor of Nicole's birthday. Nicole is a listener that's reached out to me a few times with movie requests, and she's like, you know what, I want you to cover the movie Titanic for my birthday. And I'm like, you know what? I love Titanic. I have such a major crush on that movie, Titanic. Let me tell you. I'm going to get into my history in a minute on Titanic. But Titanic is what did it for me with my Leo craze back in 1997. That movie cemented my love of Leonardo DiCaprio. So... Now, I normally, I, I shy away from this. I've had an issue doing this when I was growing up, and even I'm starting to work through it. And what I'm referring to is singing Happy Birthday. Of course, you know, I have to sing Happy Birthday for my husband, Jeremy. His birthday's coming up, and I've been working on that, and I've been getting good in the last few years. So, <clears throat> all right, Nicole. I'm going to sing you happy birthday. Please don't laugh. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Nicole. Happy birthday to you. And many more. All right. There you go. There's <laughs> your happy birthday song. Curse of me. <laughs> yes, the movie I'm reviewing today is Titanic. Now, we all know Titanic is over three hours long, and they kind of split the movie in two on the discs, so I'm going to cover the first part up to where the ship hits the iceberg, and then the second half I'm going to do in a second podcast to cover the point where it's hit the iceberg, everyone's trying to figure out what to do, and everyone's scrambling around all the way up to the end of the film. Because this, this movie is going to be a long one, guys. It's definitely going to be a long one. Because you know that the average hour and a half movie that I normally cover tends to go to three hours. So I will do my bestest. All right. Real quick. My history with the movie Titanic in a nutshell. I saw it in December of 97 when it came out. My grandma took me and my friend to see it. My friend got me the soundtrack to Titanic. All I got for her was all I could afford was a teen magazine. Um, I went home that night, played the the soundtrack. Now, I'm going to tell you, upon first viewing in the theater, and I say first because I saw it a few times in the theater, I think at least thrice. I saw it completely three times in the theater. Um... What was I saying again? <laughs> um, sadly, I did not cry at Jack's death. Guys, we've seen the movie. We know he passes away. Um, his body could not withstand the frigid April waters. So, um, it was the second viewing. No, wait. Because I went and saw it. That would have been the first ever movie my dad and I would have seen that kicked off our... New Year's Day tradition of seeing a movie on New Year's Day. That's a movie I would have started it January 1st, 1998. 
And then, of course, I had to see it one more time by myself. And that's what I think it took like three. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. I think that's what it took the third time there by myself and you know Celine Dion's song my heart will go on it's just it was all over the place but it's just your heart just swells with emotion when you hear just her hitting those high notes and I'm sure if you had like MTV and VH1 you saw the music video to my heart will go on and you saw the the footage that was intercut into the movie I mean, I would, I hopped aboard that Love for Leo train and I rode it all the way through the station and back again. It was just, I was one of the, because I was, was I, I was 15. I was 15. I was in high school. And it's like when you get a, a, a crush on a celebrity and they've been making movies for years. And you're like, okay, I've seen Titanic. I want to see all their other movies. So I saw Ro I saw Romeo and Juliet before Titanic, but it was Titanic that, like I said, cemented my love for Leo. And then I'm like, okay, I gotta see. Let's see. And the internet wasn't hugely widely available in 1997. If it was, I didn't have access to it. Um, I wanted to see his earlier stuff. You know, he was on. <clears throat> I'm sorry for coughing, I just had some chips and cheese, and apparently it's not, uh, I don't know. Anyway, I had the Disney Channel in 97, Growing Pains was on there, and I got to see the Leo episodes when he was on Growing Pains. I'm like, okay, I want to see this boy's life, what's eating Gilbert Grape, uh, Basketball Diaries was one that my friend was big into Marky Mark at the time, so I watched that movie. Basketball Diaries was like, whoa, wow. Um, but Marvin's, another one that I had to tape off the TV that was really hard to find was Total Eclipse, where he plays a, um, like a 17th century poet who has a, um, gay romance with, um, his mentor, who's also a poet. There's a sex scene in the movie, and yeah. Hmm. Uh, Man in the Iron Mask. It's funny because that came out in March of 98 and Titanic was still going strong in March. It wouldn't have been until at least, what, September of 98 that the movie actually eventually came out on VHS. There was the blue copy, which is full screen, and then the bronze cop VHS copy that was the widescreen version. Of course, I went for full screen, and my husband to the stage so said, oh, you're one of those. I went for the full screen copy. Because <laughs> Jeremy worked at the video store in 97, so, of course, when Titanic came out on VHS, I guess that was a midnight release and everything like that. So Also, uh, The Beach was another, oh, my gosh, Leo with the bronze tanner and the short hair. Oh, he's so hot in that movie. Did you guys know that he was rejected for the role of Hobie Buchanan? Oh my gosh, can you imagine Leo as Hobie on Baywatch, the son of uh, David Hasselhoff? Oh my gosh, you'd be seeing him shirtless all the fucking time. Oh, oh boy. Okay, um, I don't you know, after the beach, it's like some of his movies I just felt were 
they were I, I I'm trying to see when I eventually decided to uh disembark the Leo train. I know it was uh let's see here. Just kind of looking uh The Beach in 2000, he played uh Gangs of New York was just like uh I that, that was almost that would have been the last New Year's Day movie my dad and I would have seen because the following year we tried to see Cold Mountain on January 1st, 2003 and the movie of course was sold out. I threw a fit for a 21 year old acting like, oh my gosh, no, we can't, we gotta see it today because it, it's not gonna count if we don't see it on New Year's Day. And um... Yeah, uh, Catch Me If You Can, I liked that one. The Aviator was alright. Um, didn't care for The Departed, never saw Blood Diamond or Body of Lies. Revolutionary Road, oh, with him and Kate Winslet, who is one of my favorite actresses. Shutter Island, I saw okay. Inception, never saw it. J. Edgar, basically what I'm saying, D Django Unchained, Great Gatsby, Wolf of Wall Street. These movies, I just, The Revenant, another one. He actually finally got that Oscar. I just jumped off Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, I just, I jumped off the Leo train by um, when Departed came on. I'm just like, eh, I'm sure he's definitely, he's good in those, but it's just, I don't know. I think my crush was waning. I was over 21 years old, and I just, I don't know. I think it's just, at that time, it's like, it's not so much about Leo, but as the movie he's in, and what it's about, and if I actually want to see it. So that was, uh, that's my little, uh, Leo train love for Leo. Let's, uh, talk about Titanic here. I got the IMDb posted. We got a hot picture of Leo smoking that Siggy, playing those cards, getting that, uh, once-in-a-lifetime chance ticket on the Titanic. Let's see. When do, I want to start with how much money this movie made worldwide. Holy good goalie. Wow. When was it released? Uh, December 19th, 1997. So the budget was $200 million. Opening weekend. It says it made... 28 million but then gross 659 million worldwide 2 billion 194,439 and wait 2,194,439,542 wow Cool. That's <laughs> we got a lot of trivia. I don't want to go through all of it because there's just so much of it in this movie. It's it's so long. I really want to get to the movie. I might just save the trivia for after. Um, of course, aside from Leo, we have. <clears throat> all right, let me go through the cast here. We got Leonardo DiCaprio playing Jack Dawson, Kate Winslet as Rose Dewitt Bucator. Billy Zane as Cal Hockley playing such a fucking prick in this movie. I hate his ass. Almost as much as I hate Francis Fisher's Ruth DeWitt Bucator, you know, Rose's mom. Huh. 
Kathy Bates playing Molly Brown. Of course, we got to have that comedic relief in there, don't we? Yeah, I mean. Huh. Speaking of Kathy Bates, she looks, I mean, she looks really good for, for her age. I mean, I'm not saying she's old as dirt. She's not. She's, how old is Kathy Bates? Born in 48. So she would be five years older than my dad would be 67. So she would be, what, 72? Fran, like I said, Frances Fisher, Ro Ruth Dewitt Bucator, we got Gloria Stewart, R.I.P. She played Old Rose, another R.I.P. with Bill Paxton playing Brock Lovett. It's been three years already since we lost Bill Paxton? Wow, feels like just like a year ago. Let's see. Any other? Victor Garber playing Thomas Andrews. Let's see. I'm trying to see if there's any other names. Danny Nucci as Fabrizio. He was on the Fosters, um, that ABC Family Freeform show. And at first when I saw him, I'm like, gosh, the guy, he sounds... He, not so much sounds familiar, because here he's playing with an accent, and then in the Fosters, he didn't have one. But it's like that face. I know that face. Sure enough, Danny Nucci. I don't really think there is anyone else in the cast that I really recognize. So, all right. So, according to IMDb, it's got a 7.8 out of 10 rating based on 1,008,826 ratings. Cool. Of course, it was directed by James Cameron of the Terminator franchise and written by James Cameron. I remember, real quick, going back to my teen years, um, when I saw a black and white... Um, picture of it in a teen magazine and at the time I wasn't sure it just said Titanic Leo's in Titanic and I'm like it's all it said was something about a, a shipwreck or a, a voyage or it's a historical period piece and I'm just like what's that that sounds interesting I can't remember what movie I saw the trailer it was just such a teaser with that haunting music and this going down that uh, ship hallway or uh, the deck or something, and you just hear that. Um, it's just, Titanic's got an amazing soundtrack. It's so beautiful. There's even um, another soundtrack. There's the official soundtrack. There's Back to Titanic, which has a song. You know the song that he sings to her when um, they're up on the bow of the ship and she's got her arms out? And she's like, I'm flying, Jack. I'm flying. And he's singing the Come Josephine in my flying machine. I love that song so much. And the song is kind of interlaced with dialogue from the movie. I just want to play the begin a little bit of the beginning of the song because it's so good. And then I'm going to jump right into the movie, guys. But this is so beautiful. <laughs> calling out she 
it's such a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And I remember, a uh, real quick, a um, book wreck. It's just, if you guys, we all love Titanic. I'm hoping they make this book into a movie. It's also about a shipwreck. It's by Ruta Sepetis, my one of my favorite authors of historical fiction. She wrote in 2016, Salt to the Sea. Let me read uh, real quick. While the Titanic and the Lusitania, I cannot pronounce this to save my life, Lusitania are both well-documented disasters. The single greatest tragedy in maritime history is the little-known January 30th, 1945, sinking in the Baltic Sea by a Soviet submarine of the Wilhelm, Wilhelm Gustav. A German cruiser or a German cruise liner that was supposed to ferry wartime personnel and refugees to safety from the advancing Red Army. The ship was overcrowded with more than 10,500 passengers. The intended capacity was approximately 1,800 and more than 9,000 people, including 5,000 children, lost their lives. Sepetus, writer of Between Shades of Grey, crafts four fictionalized but historically accurate voices to convey the real-life tragedy. Joanna, a Lithuanian with nursing experience. Florian, a Prussian soldier fleeing the Nazis with soul and treasure. And Amelia, a Polish girl close to the end of her pregnancy, converge on their escape journeys as Russian troops advance. Each will eventually meet Albert, a Nazi P-E-O-N, with delusions of grandeur assigned to the Gustav decks. Amazing book. I remember after I finished it, I was listening to Come Josephine and My Flying Machine had popped on my playlist. And I just, being overwhelmed with all the emotion at the end of the book, and just this song just hit every chord, and my eyes just started watering just thinking of all the people that that died and risked their lives to save others so others might have a chance to live and everything and it's just like oh my heart my heart but guys i am ready let's jump into titanic um i did actually purchase a portable blu-ray player because there are some movies i plan to do in the future that are like blu-ray only that i own and I'm like, okay, I, I figure, why not? Let's watch Titanic in Blu-ray. And I just, the music is, the menu, it's just, it's so haunting. It hits you right in the heart. So, as I said, guys, I'm going to be cutting this movie into two separate episodes. So, get comfy, get your, get your soda, your drink of choice, get your snack of choice. Mine, I actually just ordered it. I actually ordered a couple things from Instagram ads. Um, one is called Cajun Pop. It's Louisiana-style popcorn. Uh, this flavor, it's I got like five different flavors. This one is New Orleans Beignet. The sweetness of the South, caramel corn dusted with a flurry of powdered sugar. They also have... Um, and guys, I'm not being sponsored by this Cajun Pop, so. We got pecan pie. We got king cake, which is kind of like funnel cake flavored. Um, 
dat cheddar. Give me dat habit forming cheesiness. Says yes, Bonnie. I. I <laughs> um, and of course the last one, which is probably what I'm gonna have last. This is the last flavor I'm gonna try when the box is near empty. Boiled crawfish. Our original popcorn kicked up with a hearty, with hearty Cajun spices. When life gives you lemons, boil crawfish. So. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm ready. I haven't seen this in a while. Um, occasionally it would come on like Netflix and stuff like that and Jeremy would be watching like halfway through and it's like, no, I want to watch it with you together. And it's like, okay. So I'm excited to watch this again. It's been a bit. Got my subtitles on. I love, I gotta have the subtitles 100%. I love them. They help me so much. Because they pick up on things like sometimes some misdialogue. That happens, and you're like, what did they say? Just for me, I think it enhances the movie experience. So, of course, we get the sepia-toned beginning of Titanic. We got all the people that are on the ship getting ready to leave. We got someone, of course, taking footage, photographs to commemorate this, uh, the start of this voyage. You got everyone, probably family members and well-wishers on the ground just waving goodbye. And then those on the ship that are waving goodbye to their loved ones. And I'm just like, it just, that realization that just hits you is like, most of these people are going to die. And it's just like, their family members are probably never going to see them again. Because there weren't that many survivors. And think about it, guys. Most of those survivors that survived Titanic, even the youngest survivor that probably wouldn't really remember the events, has passed on due to old age. And that, that's like that with a lot of the major events in history, even with the Holocaust and stuff like that. A lot of the survivors, even the youngest ones who are probably now like 80s, 90s, it's like eventually they're going to be gone. But their stories, much like Titanic and everything, as long as we're telling their stories, these memories will continue to live on and people will continue to be educated about all of these tragedies that have taken place in the world. As long as there, there are voices to continue to tell these stories. I love the title card of Titanic with the backdrop of the Atlantic or of the ocean behind it just really sets the tone. So of course this movie is going to be jumping back and forth between present time 97 and past of 1912 with once we meet Rose and she starts to tell her story. Of course, present day 97, we do have Brock Lovett who has been searching for the Hope Diamond. Not the Hope Diamond, I'm sorry. Um, it's the diamond we know, the necklace that Cal gives to Rose. We'll, we'll get to that scene when we get to that scene. But he's been looking for it. We'll find out how many years he's been searching for this diamond. 
And he's, they actually do go down to the wreck of Titanic. They have this little, uh, Hubble watercraft thing set up with lights and cameras and everything to go into the Titanic and kind of look around. A lot of, the, like, a lot of the stuff is just, it's been down there so much, you gotta be careful with what you're touching. There was actually, um, there was a doll that I don't know how long, it, it lasted so long down there, but of course its eyes were missing. And at one point, probably upon a viewing a long time ago, I actually probably thought that was like a human face. Of course, in the second half, when I cover the second half of the movie, I do also want to take a look at the deleted scenes and I'll kind of go through them with you and... I'll give, like, a thumbs up, like, yes, this definitely should have been in the movie, or a thumbs down saying, no, it's good that they cut this, so. So, we do hear Brock Lovett's voice as he's documenting this experience. He's got his uh, handheld camera, and he's just really playing it up for whoever's going to be viewing it, as he says, seeing the ship come out of, seeing her come out of the water like a ghost ship. Still gets me every time. Bill Paxton looks just... That earring is not doing him any favors. I'm sorry, it's not. But... I can only imagine how... Just knowing that, that, that part of history and actually being able to see it with your own eyes. I'm sure he's probably documented every single time he's gone down there. I mean, I don't know. Do we learn how many trips he's taken down there? So, yeah, he's narrating for this video saying that 2.30 a.m. April 15th, 1912 is where Titanic finally hit the ocean floor and laid its final rest. And, of course, we got Mr. Comedy here. What is his name? Well, we'll find it. Mr. I can't remember his name, but we'll, I'm sure we'll learn it later. And he's just like, oh, you're full of shit, boss. Because <laughs> Brock is, Love It is really, he is hamming it for the camera. He's just really, like, being really serious and, like, getting, like, um, emotional, like, for this. I'm guessing it's for his own private use, you know, just documenting the experience. It's not like he's going to take it to some place and say, hey, this is the footage I took from going down and viewing um, the remains of the Titanic. I, 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 he's pretty much just doing this just for him, this documentary, I would bet. Either that or he's using um, footage for to get you know, grant money and for research purposes so they can keep giving him money so he can make these trips down to the Titanic. Okay, so he does say it is dive six. So this is the sixth time they've been down to Titanic. So right now they're approaching the deck of Titanic. So he's saying two and a half miles down, 3,821 meters. And he's just kind of saying for the camera, like, the pressure outside is three and a half tons per square inch. He explains how the windows that are in that little Hubble thing that they're taking down there, they're nine inches thick, and if they go, it's sayonara in two microseconds. Couldn't, like, the farther you go, like, if, or even if you're, like, snorkeling or whatever, I've never been, 
but that pressure like builds to the point where your ears can pop and everything like that and just it's not safe for your body like the pressure gets to be too much or something like it could kill a person I'm just guessing. So he shuts the camera off. He's like, all right, enough of that bullshit. So he's even calling it bullshit himself. It's like, I think he's just doing that for this. If he, if, if it's a documentary that he's doing or he's hamming it up on the um, serious and emotional side for whoever's going to view it. Like, all right, enough of that bullshit. Let's get to work here. Like, he's probably saying, like, I'm doing this for research purposes with the Titanic, but secretly his agenda is he wants to find that necklace. And, of course, I, that's not, you know, he's got his own ulterior motive. He's not going to tell the people that are paying for him to take trips down the Titanic that. He's like, oh, yeah, well, thinking to himself, like, well, I'm down there. I mean, I can pretend to be looking and examining things, but seriously, I'm just looking for, um... The diamond. <laughs> so we got this little uh, Duncan, as they've named it. That's what's actually going to go into the ship. I guess they're going to go by the grand staircase and kind of make their way from there. And it's really cool because it's done by this little uh, Duncan robot. It's just done all by hand-holding controls. And, of course, we got Lewis. He's the big guy. I just remembered his name. You know, came to... Uh, my mind from my umpteen thousand times of seeing this movie and he's working like the the arm controls of the duncan robot so yeah pretty much giving everyone directions about where to to look like all right we're going down to d deck also we're gonna go through the reception area the dining saloon like all of that because I'm sure they only got so much time that they can be down there. Like, maybe, what, a couple hours? And they gotta get as much footage. And he's probably, like, check as many places as you, as you can for that diamond. Because clearly it's going to be wherever Cal Hockley stayed. It's really eerie because you're seeing a lot of this is on, what, it's you know, black and white footage based on, you know, the camera that they're picking up. And you see the chandelier, you just see, like, broken pieces of wood and just, the ship's just deterior deteriorated and everything like that. And it's just like, wow. So we do hear a little bit of um, that Titanic flute music coming in. As we see a pair of boots, we see... A pair of glasses with just one lens attached. Oh, there we see the doll buried, buried in the sand with empty eye sockets and no hair. Wow, just amazing how some things are preserved and some things just deteriorate, deteriorate beyond. Is that an electric eel? We see like a, it looks like it could be an eel. So they got different cameras down there in different sections of the ship. Like, one guy's like, hey, we're at the piano. Uh, Cal and Lewis are probably in one of the suites looking around trying to find where that, uh, that safe would be, where they think that necklace is. So yeah, they're, uh, Brock and Lewis are checking out uh, the bedroom suite of where Cal and you know, um, 
Oh, at least where Cal had slept. I don't know about Rose and uh, Ruth, her mother. So, And you see the bed, and of course Brock's got to say, oh, that's it, that's where the son of a bitch slept. First we see a bathtub, and Lewis has got to make a joke. Oops, someone left the water running. <laughs> they found the, uh, the safe chest. They found it. And Lewis is like, oh, baby, baby, are you seeing this, boss? And just one word from Brock. It's payday. Well, no, he's like, it's payday, boys. <laughs> All right, now we're going to jump above sea level to the ship. And now Brock is going to, of course, they're all celebrating before they even open the safe. Popping some champagne. And, of course, Lewis is like, who's the man? Who's the man? Come on, say it. Say it. And Brock's like, you are Lewis. So they're bringing up the safe from down, down below. And you just hear people, like, shouting, cheering, clapping. They're celebrating. I want to play this clip here. Like, all right, let's see what's going to be in the safe. Well, we all personally know because we've seen this movie a bunch of times, but they don't know. They are in for a surprise. Maybe a little disappointment. Yeah. Oh yeah, you gotta have that champagne. Woo! Ew. Oh, he is pissed. Turn the camera off. Brock, partners would like to know how it's going. <coughs> hey, Dave. Very high. Look, it wasn't in the same. But hey, hey, don't worry about it. Still plenty of places it could be. <coughs> Hell yes. The floor debris in the suite, the mother's room. First is safe on sea deck. In the office briefcase. Doesn't it? It's like, guys, look, I just have to trust my instincts. I know we're close. I just gotta go through a little process of elimination. So basically he pulls out of that safe just some gunk and shred, you know, papers and stuff like that. He pulls out um, some leather-bound thing that he just immediately discards. I mean, it's he's looking for the diamond. That's not the diamond, so it's not important to him. And, of course, they're getting the footage. Like, we gotta... 
we gotta cover this event. It's a big moment, you know. They're all thinking, oh, he's gonna find the diamond. And, of course, he doesn't. And the one guy's, oh, there's no diamond. And Lewis is like, you know, boss, the same thing happened to Geraldo and his career never, requ- uh, never recovered. So, of course, now Brock has to answer to some people that want to know where the diamond is. And it's like, oh, no, 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 there's plenty of other places it could be. He says, like, the mother's suite, the, the, the dining room, like, all sorts of places. Now, while he's talking to probably the people that are backing this trip, paying for every dive that he goes down to the Titanic, because he's got people he's got to answer to also, um, they do take that leather-bound cover and there's a picture we see on a little TV they're like using something to clean off like all the debris and all the gunk and everything that's built up over the years and surprisingly I mean this thing's been in in a leather binding cover this whole time it's also been in a safe which I didn't think it wasn't, like, sealed 100%, like, tight where no moisture is going to get to it because they open, they, like, rip open the safe door and just outpours all this rust-colored water. And they're just kind of getting all of that. And how this picture of this naked woman is in 100% perfect condition as the day it was originally created is beyond my realm and scope of knowledge. So, it's not the naked woman that catches Brock's eye. It's what is hanging around her neck. And he's like, give me, give me, give me that uh, photograph. He holds it up, the picture of the necklace to what this woman is wearing. Identical. Identical. And he's like, I'll be damned. So, all right. Well, we are going to go to a different place. We're going to a home. There's a lot of black and white sepia tone pictures. And now that we all know who this person is, let's look at some of these pictures. Maybe we can see who these pictures are of. We also hear on a TV that's playing maybe the news is it says treasure hunter Brock Lovett is best known for finding Spanish gold. Okay. So he's a treasure hunter. All right. We learned a little more about Brock Lovett. We also see in this home, we see a wheelchair. Of course, this is the woman in the picture. Let's see some of these pictures. Let's see. Oh, there's an, a lady. She's sitting on an elephant. Makes me think of Water for Elephants. Such a good movie. We also have... Looks like she's posing in front. Like, she's a young girl posing in a picture. Um, I don't know who these two are. That could very well be the woman Rose meets later on in life. This looks like this could be Rose with maybe her children. I see it like a... A little girl there, maybe a boy. So we do have a woman here, a caretaker, 
and she is taking care of an older woman, this we know, old Rose, and of course Rose has got her pet. She's got her Pomeranian, she's got her goldfish, both are going to come with her when she is invited to Brock Lovett's ship. Okay, so he's uh, on a Russian ship. Gotcha. And he's doing uh, research. Gotcha. We do see old Rose. She is taking a pottery. She's got a pottery wheel. And it looks like around her, just all these pots that she's created. She's got a little greenhouse thing going on. Looks like she's lived a very nice, happy, comfortable life. Looks like she's also done a little bit of traveling. We do see statues from different countries and cultures. So we got Brock Lovett, of course, talking about, you know, the stories of Titanic and the band playing till the very end and all of that stuff. But what Brock is interested in is the untold stories, the secrets locked deep inside the hull of Titanic. And that is what makes Rose... Stop her pottery and look up. Like, hmm, what is this now about the Titanic? She's probably been having to field questions about the Titanic for a lifetime. I mean, you know, if her name was published, like, oh, you're a survivor on the Titanic. Tell us your stories. Of course, Brock, while he's doing all this stuff, diving down to Titanic, going through the wreckage, people are calling him a grave robber. They're, you know... A lot of people are protesting, you know, salvage rights and even ethics and all that stuff. So he's just telling her, don't worry about it. I got museum trained experts for the relics. They're preserved. They're cataloged properly. Don't worry about it. We're not going to hurt anything. We're taking the precautions necessary. Anything we find, we're going to take proper care of. So Brock talks about the photograph that they found and Rose is just like <gasps> this paper has been under the water for 84 years and oh my goodness it is just so pre well preserved and of course she is trying to recall she's almost a hundred years old just one word I'll be called damned she, she's just so shocked and he, he's like, hey, should this picture just stay down in the Titanic? No. Why? That way now we can all enjoy it. It's, an, it's a nude portrait of a woman. All right. So looks like Brock is going to get that call from the woman in the picture. And, of course, he probably thinks this is some publicity stunt. Someone's just trying to get money out of him. So he really is like, I'm not, no, no, no. He's not taking it seriously. Like, clearly this is an old lady. She's confused. She's just after him for money. It's like, this girl, this lady, she ain't hurting for nothing, buddy. She ain't hurting for nothing. She's had a wonderful, solid, happy, comfortable life. She's done what she wanted to do. We'll get into that at the end of the movie. <sighs> Calvert. Okay. Mrs. Calvert. I was just wondering. 
tell us who the woman in the picture is? Yes, the woman in the picture is me. So, of course, I neglected to mention until Rose mentioned it here that the necklace they're searching for has been referred to as the heart of the ocean because it's a blue diamond. And, um, yeah. He says, have you found the heart of the ocean diamond, the necklace? And, of course, Frost's like, all right, you have my attention, Rose. Can you tell me who the lady in the picture is? And she's like, oh, yes, of course. The lady in the picture is me. And boom, jump cut. We've got her in the airplane. She's coming down. She's going to be sharing her story. She's got so much stuff with her. She's like, I need all of it. I need my baby, my pup, my my Pomeranian. I need my fish. I need my pictures. She is setting up shop. She's like, I'm going to live here for however long it's going to take to share my story. So, yeah, she's like, I got to take my all my stuff with me when I travel. That's just that's how I do. That's that's all me here. Of course, she's got to bring her granddaughter. I think her granddaughter's name is like Lizzie or something. And of course, we see Oval Rose with her Pomeranian. Whether we get his or her name, I don't know. We might. Of course, Lewis has got his own uh Stuff to spew about the oh my gosh it's goddamn large some nutcase seeking money or publicity who knows what and of course Brock is pretty much on the I believe Rose I haven't even met her yet officially but I believe her Anastasia. <laughs> They're coming. Rose DeWitt Decatur died on the Titanic when she was 17, right? That's right. If she had lived, she'd be over 100. Right? Not impossible. 101 next month. Okay, so she's a very old goddamn liar. Look, I've already done the background on this woman all the way back to the 20s. When she was working as an actress. An actress. There's your first clue, Sherlock. on Rose because Lewis did the background info as much as he could do back in 1997. Found out that Rose was an actress working in the 20s. She uh, went by Rose Dawson back then, which we learn later on. And then she moves to Cedar Rapids. Um... Where is Cedar Rapids? I swear we get a Cedar Rapids. It's in Iowa. I swear we get a reference to it from Jack. And I'm wondering now, like, maybe she moved to where Jack was from, maybe to get a sense of, you know, who, who he was, see if people knew who he was and stuff like that. Because he mentions, you know, doing some ice fishing. Granted, he also mentioned the city uh chippewa falls i thought it was like wisconsin or something yeah and we'll get into it when we get it, uh get to that scene of course chippewa falls is in wisconsin he mentions you know going ice fishing with his dad and all that stuff 
She also moves to Cedar Rapids. She meets a man named Calvert. They have a couple chill, you know, a couple kids. She kind of settles down and lives her life. I'm honestly really wondering if she went back to where Jack said he was, you know, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. It's like, clearly somebody's going to know this kid. She took his last name as a way to honor him. And I'm sure she must have thought, like, look, I can start anew. I can start a fresh life. She probably wanted to see what she could find on Jack. Does he have any family members? Any of that stuff. That's what I'm kind of wondering. And Lois is just like, look. Clearly, Rose Dewitt Bucator died when she was 17 uh, aboard the Titanic. You know, this woman, if she had lived, would be over 100 right now. And Brock's like, yeah, Lois, she'd be 101 next week. I mean, how much research other than the fact that Rose Dewitt Bucator... Yeah, she, that person died on the Titanic because she took on a new identity. And I'll get more into that towards, you know, in, the, in part two of this review. So, of course, you're going to see that. She don't want to be found. You, you change your last name. But I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that and let's go to Rose's arrival. Of course, Lewis, always the commentator, like, oh my god, look at all these suitcases. She doesn't travel light, does she? She's got like eight suitcases and a ginormous fucking trunk. Damn, girl. She don't travel light. But maybe this was for her, this was her way of finally putting things to rest. Like, this one last thing I have to do for myself. And then I can, you know, move on to the next life. I bet. So Brock comes in to check on Rose, and he's like, oh, everything all right? Everything good here? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I gotta have my picture. It's with me when I travel. Everything's nice. Oh, have you met my granddaughter, Lizzie? It's like she's trying to set up her granddaughter with this guy. And, of course, her granddaughter's like, oh, Grandma, we met already up on deck, remember? And, of course... Rose like, oh, yeah, my memory, I don't know. And, of course, we see Lewis and Brock kind of share, like, oh, man, this is going to be. <laughs> like, they're trying to, like, confirm their suspicions. Like, oh, this lady isn't who she says she is. Like, we're just going along with it. So he asks, do you need anything? And Rose says, I would like to see my, my picture. So she sees her drawing and she closes her eyes if but for a minute and we get a flash of the bluest of blue eyes the amazing face just a little bit just from like the bridge of the nose up so we get the shot of the eyes and it's just 
also the hand, like, doing the portrait and everything, which actually, that's not Leo's hand, that's James Cameron's hand. <laughs> How does such a young self have such an old hand? It's not his hand. So, Brock gives a little history lesson about King Louis the Sixteenth. How he lost everything, including the uh, the crown diamond, which supposedly was cut into, recut into a heart shape that became known as the heart of the ocean. So of course, the heart of the ocean is not real. Is the name of a fictional 56 carat blue diamond featured prominently in the 1997 film Titanic. It is said to originally be owned by Louis XVI, and shortly after its execution in 1793, the diamond was dis the diamond disappeared and was recut into a heart-like shape known as the Heart of the Ocean. Okay, that's from TitanicFandom.com Wiki Heart of the Ocean. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And apparently, for Titanic's sake, fictional sake, it would be worth in 1997 more than the Hope Diamond. Of course, Rose speaks from his experience, saying it was a dreadfully heavy thing. I only wore it, like, at once, like, in this picture. That was the only time I had it put on, because, uh, yeah, it's just... I'm surprised she's like, it's so ugly. And even her granddaughter Lizzie is skeptical. Like, oh, you really think that this is you, Nana? And, of course, Rose is like, well, it is me, dear. It's a nice dish. <laughs> I take it that's a term from way back when. So apparently he tracked down the uh, Heart of the Ocean necklace through an old insurance claim that was settled under terms of absolute secrecy. And he brings up Kelvin Hockley. Oh, Nathan Hockley. Okay, so his nephew Cal is the one who got it. Um, Nathan was a Pittsburgh steel tycoon, so clearly that's how Cal came into money, I'm guessing. I guess he, like, ran a mill or something. Oh, his son. Okay, not nephew. And I guess Cal's whole name was Calden. I thought it was Calvin. Whatever. Alright, yeah. So a week before Titanic sailed, he had gotten it to give to his fiance. And Brock tells her, like, well, it was filed right after the sinking, that insurance claim. Ooh. Brock thought, you know, the diamond had to have gone down with the ship, technically. Although, he points to the date on the picture, April 14th, 1912, and he says, if your grandmother is who she said she is, she was wearing the diamond the day the Titanic sank. And Brock, of course, has this big old smile on his face. He says... And that makes you my new best friend. Because she was wearing the diamond the day the Titanic sank. So they did recover some stuff from the stateroom. Um, the mirror. There's like a butterfly hair clip. And I like when she... Ta oh, um, when Rose takes the mirror, she turns it around. She's like, oh, it looks just like it did when I first, you know, used it. And then she turns around the mirror to the mirror face, looks at her reflection and says, oh, my, my reflection has changed a bit. <laughs> so she's holding the butterfly hair clip and just remembering as Brock kneels down next to her and asks, are you ready to go back to Titanic? We have Lewis doing like a CGI 
detail of the Titanic hitting the iceberg and just the damage that would be done. And it's just, it's so hilarious, just his own interpretation of it, even though he wasn't there. And of course, Rose is like, well, my version of it, of how it actually happened, was a bit different from the, what you're saying. Because she was actually there. spills over the watertight bulkheads, which unfortunately don't go any higher than its deck. So now as the bow goes down, the stern rises up, slow at first and faster and faster until finally she's got her whole ass sticking up in the air. And that's a big ass. We're talking 20, 30,000 tons. Okay? And the hole's not designed to deal with that pressure. So what happens? She splits right down to the keel. And the stern falls back level. Then as the bow sinks, pulls the stern vertical, and then finally detaches. Now the stern section just kind of bobs there like a cork for a couple of minutes, floods, and finally goes under about 2.20 a.m., two hours and 40 minutes after the collision. The bow section planes away, landing about a half a mile away, going 20, 30 knots when it hits the ocean floor. Pretty cool, huh? Thank you for that fine forensic analysis, Mr. Bodine. <laughs> of course, the experience of it was somewhat different. Will you share it with us? So, of course, <laughs> as he's explaining it in on the only way that Lewis can with comedic value, she's like, oh, that was a very good interpretation of a forensic analysis, thank you. But the experience was quite different. And Brock is like, will you tell us? And, of course, this is where she stands up. And kind of just looks at the images of the Titanic as it lays now in 1997 at the bottom of the ocean. And she just says how it's been 84 years. And she kind of goes on to talk about how it was called the Ship of Dreams. And how the sheets had never been slept in. The plates had never been eaten off of. And the napkins had never been used and just just how new this ship was and how it was just such a big deal. The ship of dreams just because it was so luxurious and just so amazing and just I guess a nev no nothing had come close to it prior to. And I don't think anything ever would again. And guys, this is 1912. This was, you couldn't get more luxurious and more bigger than Titanic. It's always in the movie, it's like, oh, it's so big, it's so big, it's a big ship.
No, her story, it needs to be told. <coughs> yes, got that tape recorder already. Tell us, Rose. So she tells them how it was referred to as the Ship of Dreams, and it was. It really was. And we see the wreckage of Titanic in 1997, present day, and then all of a sudden, boom, we are in 1912. The Titanic is glorious. It's beautiful with its white and black paint. We see everyone like running to and fro. You see the people that are working on the Titanic getting things set up and ready to go. We do, of course, see this car that's being loaded onto the Titanic. That car, guys, the fact that they even show this scene here and they kind of show it being loaded onto the, clip, onto the ship, we know the significance of that car. Those of us that have seen the movie know the significance of that car. A lot of, see a lot of people that are waiting to board the ship. Of course, they all have to go through a, a health inspection, make sure no one has lice or any other types of um, you know diseases. See a girl who we will later learn her name is Cora. Her dad's like, oh, that's a big boat, huh? And of course, she's like, Daddy, it's a ship. And of course, you know he's gotta be there, riding and arriving in style, kale. Or Cal. Why did I call him Kale? No. Cal with his many automobiles. He's got his own personal bodyguard who played the professor in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. But this guy, his bodyguard's just a complete asshole. I don't even know if you want to call this guy a bodyguard because what does he do to really protect... Kale, he's pretty much, if you even want to call him Rose's bodyguard, in a way. It's almost like Kale has him specifically watching out for Rose. Of course, we see the car door open, and this valet takes the hand of a young woman, who we see is Rose do it, Bucator. He's wearing a cream white suit with purple pinstripes and a purple gauzy hat to complete the outfit. And of course, Rose is very refined for a 17-year-old girl. She's practically a woman, and she's about to be married. She's a fiancé. But she takes one look at this ship, and she's like, huh. Yeah, I've seen bigger ships than this. I'm not impressed. 
The Mortania. Let's see if we can get some info on the Mortania. It seems like all these ships all have like special names to them, like the Titanic, the Ship of Dreams. We have the Mortania, 1906 to 1935, titled Grand Old Lady of the Atlantic. All right. Transatlantic passenger liner of the Cunard Line called the Grand Old Lady of the Atlantic. It was launched in 1906, made its maiden voyage in 07. Therefore, it held... Stupid ad, I don't care. It held the Atlantic Blue Riband for speed until 1929, challenged only by its sister ship, the Lithuania, sunk by a German submarine on May 7, 1915. During World War One, I was just talking about uh, how it was also uh, used as a transport hospital... Transport and hospital ship. It made 269 double crossings of the Atlantic, exclusive of war work. Its last crossing was made in 1934, and it was broken up in 1935. So here is Rose's first interaction that we see with her soon-to-be husband, Cal. She's just not impressed, and he's like, look, Rose, you can be blasé about some things, but you cannot. You are... Very wrong about the Titanic. Basically, you don't know what you're talking about. You can be blasé about some things, Rose, but not about Titanic. It's over 100 feet longer than Mauritania. Far more luxurious. Your daughter is far too difficult to impress you. So this is the ship they say is unsinkable. It is unsinkable. God himself could not sink the ship. You have to check your baggage. The main terminal, it's round that way, sir. Put my faith in you, good sir. I finally see my man. Oh, yes, sir. My pleasure, sir. If I can do anything at all. Oh, uh, yes. Right. All the trunks from that car there. Twelve from here. And the safe to the parlor suite rooms to be 52, 54, 56. Of course, Kale has to make a comment to Rose. Like, your daughter is too difficult to impress. Well, she's 17. Even though some back then may see her as a woman, I still see her as a teenager. Yeah. So we do hear that the safe is going to be put in the parlor suite. Right, right, right. Of course, Kale talks up how the Titanic is 100 feet longer than the Mortania, also much more luxurious. So we see, I'm guessing this has got to be steerage or third class. They're being checked for lice in the hair and the beards. Kids are having their teeth checked. Of course, someone wants to bring their dogs there on the boat. I mean, Rose is kind of doing the same thing. Old Rose is doing the same thing with her daughter, Pomeranian. But this guy's got an Afghan hound. He's got a... What do they call those dogs? There's a name for them. Not a schnauzer, but it looks... A fox terrier, I think, maybe? That's a lady. That's not a man. What the heck's wrong with my eyes? We do get Old Rose kind of narrating over some of these scenes as she is walking up the plank to board the ship with Cal behind her and her mother Ruth in front of her. So she says to everyone it was the ship of dreams. To me it was a slave ship taking me back to America in chains. Um, that's a bit racist and replace a bit with 100%. Don't, don't, don't compare yourself to... That's not right. You could have used any different term. Why did you have to say that? 
So she says on the outside she was pretty much, she looked the part of a girl who was brought up in the best way possible. But inside, of course, she was screaming. We, we kind of get here from this impression that Rose is not about the finer things and how to dress and meeting the right people and saying the right things. She, of course, does have a mind of her own, which we will learn as we get to know her character. And then as she meets Jack, he kind of brings a little bit of this fire out of her, which is, is good. But, I mean, 1912, isn't this a time where it's like women met the right guy, they made the connections, you know, with, with money, and it's all about your husband's job and who your husband is and all that stuff. Women really did Rose's mother will even say, we're women. Life's never easy for us. Like, we don't get a say in the life that we have. Everything we do and say is going to be dictated by our husbands. We don't get an opinion. All right, now it's time to meet Jack Dawson, who, of course, he's in a bar. He's playing, you know, cards with his buddy Fabrizio. And they're kind of gambling with what little money they have. And Fabrizio's kind of complaining to him. He's like, you bet all of our money. Now we don't have money to get home. We don't have money to get to America. We don't have money to get anywhere. And of course, Jack's like, hey, don't worry. I got this. When you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Like, you trust Jack here. He he, he knows what he's doing. To a point. What is he got? Roll your own cigarettes? Third class, huh? Alright. Moment of truth. Somebody's life's about to change. Fabrizio? Olaf? <coughs> no. Sven? Olaf and Sven! Oh. I'm sorry, you're not gonna see your mom again for a long time. Cause we're going to America! Full house, boys! No! Oh, come Oh, yeah, you're going to get your ass kicked. <coughs> oh, no, no, no. Send your friend out instead. Then you need to move your ass. Yeah, take all that change. You're going to need it for some
doing? Of course. Anyway, we don't have any lights. We're Americans. Both of us. Right. Come along. Man, that would make me nervous having to jump. jump back to this card game and kind of go through it a little bit here. So, Jack and Fabrizio, they're playing cards with two guys. You want to know what their names are? <laughs> Granted, in 97, those names didn't really mean anything, but in 2020, we're all familiar with these two names, and they've taken on an entirely different meaning. Olaf and Sven. Yeah. Frozen, anybody? Oh my god! Frozen! Frozen! Like... The April waters, cold, frozen waters. Yes, yes! I, I swear, a connection between frozen and, um, Titan. Oh, yeah! Elsa and Anna's parents, they died in a, I mean, that has nothing to do with that, but mind you. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So, of course, they're saying, Hugh Moron, I can't believe you bet our tickets. They have the third class uh, passenger tickets, along with some change. I swear we get the term Mortania thrown in there again. It's like we got not just spare change, we got maybe a gold watch, you know, a pocket watch, we got um, a, a knife of sorts, jackknife, pocket knife, whatever you want to call it. Jack, of course, is smoking one of those roll-your-own cigarettes that looks like it's, like, hanging on for dear life. My dad used to make those roll-your-own cigarettes. He he had one of those roller things, too, and one time he like, here, go roll me a cigarette, and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And finally he was like, oh, let me do it. So Jack looks like he's the one who's got the deck just underneath him who's dealing himself cards, and think, well, he's kind of got the upper hand in this game. I was right, there is a pocket watch, and there is a pocket knife, along with some coins. It's like a mixture of like foreign coins, currency, and other coins. Now, this line has been bumbling around in my head for weeks, and I just could not place it for the life of me. Sometimes the movie line will get stuck in my head, and I'm like, eventually I will figure it out if I say it over and over and over again. But this line that he says here, all right, moment of truth. Someone's life is about to change. I could not place it for the life of me because it sounded similar to something that I heard in the movie White Squall where the boys were all like spinning a bottle to see who was going to lose their virginity to some girl or something like that. But, um, turns out Fabrizio's got nothing. The other guy's got nothing. Some guy's got two pair and... Of course, Jack's like, oh, two pair. That uh, doesn't sound good. Fabrizio, I'm sorry, but looks like... And, of course, Fabrizio thinks that Jack is lost. Like, we're fucked because you just... We didn't have hardly anything, and what little we did had you just bet all of it. And Jack's like, no, no, you know what? I'm very sorry, but you're not going to be able to see your mother for a very, very long time. And he's like, because we're going to America, full house. And he throws his cards down and it's like, hell yeah. And I'm just thinking, looking back on this scene here, 
with them taking Olaf and Sven's places on the ship, I'm kind of wondering what happened to Olaf and, and Sven. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a Final Destination type of theory where, like, death finds Olaf and Sven regardless. Like, oh, if you'd have been on that, you know, a boat, you would have been dead. But these two took your places, and then... I, I don't know. I mean, with that theory, I'm sure there are so many different theories and so I'm sure maybe sometime I can kind of look it up and see if there's any little theories or threads about Sven and Olaf giving up their tickets and Jack and Fabrizio dying in their place or something like that I'm sure there is and of course Sven or Olaf can't remember which one goes to grab Jack like fucking asshole you cheated and of course, Jack braces himself to get his face punched. And the guy ends up just punching the other guy. Because it was probably like, hey, you bet our tickets. So, it's like, yes, we're going to America. I'm going home. Yes, because I don't know where exactly they had come in from. Because Jack's kind of a world traveler. Just going where the wind blows him. And, of course, the barkeep's like, oh, Titanic goes to America in, like, five minutes. I'm like, you need to move your asses if you're going to make... The, the bar is, like, right outside the, by the ship, so... But they need to haul ass. And the, the area is already crowded with well-wishers and other people trying to get, you know, pretty much everyone that's going to go on Titanic is already on board. And they're, like, running around... They almost get run over by a couple of horses, a horse carriage, and luckily they get onto the ship. And the guy's like, have you been through the inspection queue? And of course, Lee, uh, I keep wanting to call them Leo. It's like, no, Jack's like, oh, no, yes, we have been. And we don't have lights because we're Americans, both of us. And the guy's like, okay, jump on board. And there's like at least five feet to six feet of space between that um, ramp that they're going up and the opening of the ship. And it's like, you're going to have, that would make me so nervous. Like, oh my God, oh my God, if I don't make this, I'm going to fall straight down. <laughs> but all right, they're on the ship. Of course, Jackson, like, we're the luckiest sons of bitches in the world. And <laughs> of course they get up to the top deck be out, out there with everyone just saying, bye, we'll miss you. And of course, when Jack's like, bye, everybody, and Fabrizio's like, what, you know somebody? And Jack's like, no, that's not the point, you know, we're just saying goodbye. We're on this voyage, and just like, bye, and Fabrizio's like, bye, I'll never forget you, I love you. <laughs> so, of course, they gotta find their room in class three, oh, class three, um, third class, <laughs> and... The guys that are there obviously knew Sven and Olaf, like, because he's like, hey, where's Sven? And, you know, there's that language barrier there. And Fabrizio and Jack just, hey, hey, how's it going? Hi. Um, and, of course, Fabrizio, like, jumps on the top bunk, and Leo's like, hey, who says you get the top bunk? <laughs> we even see someone on G-Deck who's got a, um, a translator book who's trying to figure out probably what that sign says. Yeah, the guy, these two guys are like, what? Who are you? 
And he looks at, the guy looks at his um, bunkmate and he's like, where's Sven? It's like, we were all going to ride together to America. What's going on here? And he does, the guy, I mean, we don't see these two again, I don't believe. But they don't hassle him. Like, hey, my friend was supposed to be in this room with us. How do you have his ticket? None of that. It's just, uh, where's Sven? We don't know. Is that a toilet? No, that's a sink. Why would I think that's a toilet? Because it looks round like a toilet? No, it's a sink. And the rooms are pretty cramped. You got like bunks, like thin bunk beds on either side. I think that might be a table of some sort and then a sink. So we got uh, a Titanic worker, White Starline employee who's showing Cal the private promenade deck and of course Cal is not paying any attention like yeah yeah whatever I mean this guy went all out for this voyage how long is this voyage supposed to take I don't think it takes a week a few days maybe I mean if they're gonna ride in style I mean if they're gonna go to America they're gonna ride in style and we're gonna take the most popular ship that we've heard about we've all read it in the papers this is how it's gonna be makes me think like i mean i want to go to london one day and i i told jeremy i'm like if we're gonna go we need to do it first class i want a sleeping pod i'm sure those are extremely expensive i just i just i want it i want to do i want to experience first class i wanna i mean you're going across the country hours and hours and hours and hours away i don't want to be stuck in coach i mean just for something like that it just sounds like it'd be better like your first trip out of the country go first class so remember how rose is like old rose is like i need my pictures when me when i travel Young Rose is really no different. She's got to have her paintings. And she's going through all the different ones that she's brought along. Um, and this nice lady is trying to help her, like, find which painting she's looking for. It's like, oh, it had a lot of faces on it. Something that's Picasso. And that's when Cal comes in. He's like, huh, something Picasso? Oh, my gosh. The guy will never amount to anything. And I love how Rose kind of digs at Cal with uh, the ta the problem with uh, Cal's taste in art is that I actually have taste in art and he doesn't. Cal even refers to these paintings as paintings as finger paintings. Oh, they were sure were a waste of money. Did you buy them? Did you buy those paintings for her? And Rose was like, "This room really needs color. We need to spruce it up." And Rose kind of describes the paintings as uh, truth but no logic, like being inside a dream. And, of course, the lady's like, oh, what's the artist's name? And she's like, uh, something Picasso? And, of course, Cal's like, huh, something Picasso? He won't amount to a thing, trust me. Really. I'd say he's doing a, he did a hell of a lot better than you could do. So it looks like they stopped at Cherbourg, which I'm not sure where that is. Let's find out where Cherbourg is. Um, they picked up a woman named Molly Brown. I'm sure they, that that area that they launched the Titanic from and they left was not the only place that they were going to uh, pick up people. Cherbourg. France! Oh, okay. Cherbourg. Octaville, France. Oh. Uh, 
that's pretty. Oh, that's pretty. Oh, wait, those are different cities. Cool. Um, Sherbrooke and some, I'm not going to try to pronounce because I know I'll get it wrong. All right. That's awesome. So they all called her Molly, but as we know, history would call her the unsinkable Molly Brown. So basically Molly Brown inherited her money from her husband. And of course, Ruth dubs her what they would call someone as new money. Basically, you come into it via your husband. You don't come from it with your own family. You may basically, you marry someone and all of a sudden they like struck gold out. I think that's what they say about uh, Molly's husband. He struck gold out west or something. All right, looks like uh, by the next afternoon, they were leaving the coast of Ireland. So they've been making some stops, getting some more peoples. All right, looks like the captain has ordered full steam ahead. Let's stretch this girl's legs. We get to see, like, the underworkings of the Titanic with them putting, like, coal and whatever it takes to be able to run the ship and keep it moving, like increasing the speed and everything like that. All right, now, of course, we've gotten to one of the most famous lines of the movie, probably one of the most famous lines ever uttered in a film. How many times has this been parodied in something? Or I'm sure that on cruise ships since 1997 have probably, like, put up signs like don't try to do the scene from Titanic because there's two there's this one and then there's going to be the one later with Jack and Rose when he brings her up there so let's hear that famous line Jack, honestly, if you think about it, this is about as good as life can get for him because this is something he's probably, the fact that he even got to go and be on this ship that everyone's talked about, it's been in the news, it's been in the papers probably for months and months and months, and just like, life's going my way. And in his eyes, it's like, you know, I guess they're going to be going to New York. Titanic's going to go in to New York. And it's like, I can get to America. Life's going my way. I can be anything I want to be, do anything I want to do. This, the whole world is just open and the possibilities are endless. So, of course, Cal sets up a lunch with the designer of Titanic and the person who made it all possible and Rose isn't into this she's like she actually lights a cigarette as almost like a form of uh I don't know would you call it a form of defiance or just like whatever I'm gonna smoke a cigarette like either she's trying to make a point I don't know and, of course, her mother's all like, you know I don't like that, Rose. And Cal just takes a cigarette right out of 
Rose's mouth. It's actually a cigarette that's in a holder, but he takes it out. He's like, oh, yeah, she knows not to do this as he puts it out. It's like, the f- You guys know, this is not Rose's idea. This is not her grand plan. This is not how she sees her life. I love how she blows when her mother... I was like, you know I don't like that, Rose. And Rose just looks at her, like, <laughs> blows smoke in her face. Here's a puff of my secondhand smoke. I love how across the table, Molly Brown just kind of looks at him like, what? Because you know Molly's husband was not going to tell her what to do. And for, and Cal even orders for her. Like, oh, we'll both have the, we'll both have the lamb with very little mint sauce. I hate how he calls her sweet pea. Like, oh, you like lamb, right, sweet pea? And, of course, I love how Molly Brown gets in there like, oh, you going to cut her meat for her too, Kale? Of course, Mr. Ismay here was the one that came up with the name Titanic. He wanted to convey sheer size in all this. Size means stability. and uh, Great for you. Luxury and above all, strength. So Rose, of course, asks, have you heard of uh, Mr. Freud? Mr. Sigmund Freud. Oh, she says Dr. Freud. His uh, ideas about the uh, male preoccupation with size might be of particular interest to you. Oh, okay. Like the whole big swelled head, like the, like the, smaller the dick, the bigger the guy's ego is, or the bigger the dick, the guy's ego is huge. I don't know. Isn't there something about that? Like, oh, if they got a small dick or something like that, it's like they gotta make up for it with their ego, or they're trying to hide something, or I don't know. And of course, Ruth can't believe her daughter. Like, oh my gosh, what has gotten into you? Like, Whatever. Love how Molly just nods her head like, oh, we got a firecracker here, don't we? <laughs> Even Mr. Andrews is kind of chuckling like, oh, this girl, she's a spitfire. I like her. <laughs> so Rose is like, can you excuse me? He's like, I'm going to get away from this table before I say something else. And of course, Molly's like, oh, She's a pistol there, Cal. You think you can handle her? And Cal's like, well, I need to start minding what she reads from now on. Don't I, Miss Brown? Like, he couldn't be more wrong for her. Of course, Miss Ismay has no idea who Dr. Freud, because she said Dr. Freud. She didn't say Sigmund Freud. Oh, is he a passion, sir? This is the first sign that we get of Jack being an artist, as he's doing a sketch of a father and daughter kind of hanging out by the railing and looking out at the water. And it's really good. Again, as I said before, that's James Cameron's hand. That's not young 20-something Leonardo DiCaprio's hand. Actually, wait a minute. No, he was born in 1974. So if that's the case, then he would have been like 22 going on 23 at this time. Of course, Fabrizio's talking up with uh, who we... Here, uh, Tommy, and he's talking about how 15,000 Irishmen built this ship. And, of course, this is third class, mind you. We got a white starline worker who's bringing down that Afghan hound and that fox terrier to take a shit. 
is he going to clean it up? Or is he... You don't want dog shit in any part of the deck of the Titanic. People are going to walk in that shit. Like, oh, it's the lesser area. It's the third class. It's the steerage people. They're not going to care if they walk in dog shit. Like, you want to bet? You spend a shit ton of money building that damn thing. You're not going to want dog shit just clinging to the the floor of it. Ew. And it's going to stink. I mean, I get it. It's like April and stuff like that. So it's still like partially winter-ish, even though it's technically officially spring. This stuff is going to stink. It's going to bake in the sun. People are going to be puking over the sides of the ship. Just clean up the dog shit, okay? So, Jack and Tommy kind of bond here with uh, Tommy saying, yeah, first-class dogs come down here to take a shit. And Jack's like, yeah, kind of lets us know where we rank in the scheme of things. And Tommy's like, yeah, like we could forget. Oh, Tommy Ryan, not Tommy O'Ryan. So, of course, Tommy asks, this is another big moment in the movie when Jack first lays eyes on Rose, who's hanging out on the first class ship, uh, uh, ship deck railing, just kind of looking out over things. I'm trying to think whether or not he does, in fact, catch her eye for like a split second. Make any money with your drawings. He sees what she, he's looking at. Oh, forget it, Boyle. You just like have angels fly out of your arse and get next to the likes of her. <coughs> oh, I think for a split second she did kind of see him. Oh, she does. She's looking back. Oh, he's like, hey. Cal's got to ruin it. Shut up, Cal. You suck. So Tommy sees Clara's day. Jack zeroes in on Rose. And Tommy just kind of looks back. He's like, oh, forget her, boy. What do you say? Like, the, it's more likely that Angel will fight out of your arse than get near to the likes of her. <laughs> and I love for Brady kind of like, like, hello, Jack. <laughs> but she does. She looks at, like, for a split second, like, she looks at him and then looks away and then she her her glance goes back to him and of course Cal has to come and ruin the moment. <sighs> so we do get another narration from Old Rose talking about how she saw her whole life as if she'd already lived it. I mean the people that are on the ship, the adults that are married and all that, it's basically She's seeing them as what her life is going to be, a constant continuation of money, making appearances, just hanging on Cal's arm, not saying anything unless she's talking him up. And it's just like, that's not the life that she wants. I don't think that's the life anybody wants unless they are just that into being, you know, in, in the in the scene and just being out there in the public eye and stuff like that. But I think of it this way. We get one life and what we choose to do with it and how we choose to live it, that's it. You might get opportunities to change the direction of your life, but you only get one. And 
she just like no i don't want that for my i see her just thinking and that's why she she runs like no i don't want that life for me and i'm thinking in the back of her mind the only way out of this because she's engaged she is engaged to be married wedding invitations are already going to be going out and her only way out of this in her mind is suicide like i'm gonna throw myself off the back of the ship because the idea of the bleak future I see before me as Cal's wife is just so unappealing that to live a moment of that, even in my mind, is too much for me to handle. Yeah, she's saying an endless parade of parties and cotillions, dots and polo matches. Always the same narrow people, the same mindless chatter about nothing that's even really nothing important, just same old blandness. Who's wearing what? Who's with who? Who's eating the best foods? Who's getting into the right companies? Getting into the right social circles? She's talking about how she saw herself standing at the precipice and with no one to pull me back no one who cared or even noticed and that's when we see her running and you guys know that even if she were to be truthful and honest to her mother about I really don't want this this is all her mother's doing because we learn later they don't have a damn thing to their names except for you know her her dead husband's name and apparently he had a shit ton of debt. And she's like, it's a fine match with Cal Hockley. Just marry him and you'll be set, we'll be set for life. So it's almost like she's using her daughter as a pawn to get within the upper crust of society. Like, through my daughter, I will be the talk of everybody. Like, that's Ruth's in is her daughter being married to this son of a Pittsburgh teal or steel tycoon steel tycoon of course she's running and crying and we see her past the um the built-in benches as Jack is just lying there smoking another rolled up cigarette roll your own cigarette and I'm just saying like his like head is resting against the armrests those metal uncomfortable armrest how is that that would be comfortable i would like ugh. but of course her running and crying running past him he actually sits up like what's that about he is the only one that takes notice of rose and really sees her and he sees that emotional you know the emotional turmoil is just written in her face, in her mannerisms, just her actions. This is where Jack and Rose officially meet and have their first bit of dialogue. As she's clinging to the railing, looking down and just seeing this is my, this is the only way out of this. This is my only escape. To escape this future that's been laid out before me that I don't want. And as she puts her foot on the railing is when Jack comes up and he's, he pretty much knows what she's going to do. He's like, don't do it. Don't jump. 
Oh shoot, she's on the other side. No, you won't. What do you mean, no, I won't? Don't presume to tell me what I will and will not do. You don't know me. Well, you would have done it already. You're distracting me. Go away. I can't. I'm involved now. You let go and I'm, I'm going to have to jump in there after you. You'll be killed. I'm a good swimmer. <coughs> Fall alone will kill you. It would hurt. I'm not saying it wouldn't. To tell you the truth, I'm a lot more concerned about that water being so cold. How cold? Freezing. Maybe a couple degrees over. Wisconsin? What? Well, they have some of the coldest winters around. I grew up there near Chippewa Falls. I remember when I was a kid, me and my father, we went ice fishing out on Lake Wissota. Ice fishing is, you know, where you... I know what ice fishing is. Oh, really? Sorry. You just seem like, you know, kind of an indoor girl. <laughs> Anyway, I, uh, I fell through some thin ice, and I'm telling you, water that cold, like right down there, it hits you like a thousand knives stabbing you all over your body. You can't breathe, you can't think, at least not about anything but the pain, which is why I'm not looking forward to jumping in there after you. Like I said, I don't have a choice. I guess I'm kind of hoping you'll come back over the rail and, and get me off the hook here. You're crazy. That's what everybody says, but with all due respect, miss, I'm not the one hanging off the back of the ship here. Do this. <laughs> Jack Dawson. Who else do we think? Have to get you to write that one down. <laughs> 
So let's go back, of course, to Jack and Rose's first meeting here. Um, I just see Jack, his, his tone of voice and his body language. He would be great at being a hostage negotiator. He is just... He's got something about, he's just, he's caring. I mean, granted, there's nobody on this deck this, I don't know what time of night it is. It's clearly nighttime because it's dark and there are stars out. Um, no one here to really take in this situation. It's just basically going to be Herbert against his in a moment after the whole uh, rescue situation. So he's like, don't do it. Don't jump. And he's like, hey, look, just give me your hand, all right? I'll pull you back over. And she's like, look, you don't know me, all right? Just mind your own business, pretty much. She's talking about, I'll do it, I'll jump, I'll let go. And he's like, no, you won't. And she's like, what do you mean, no, I won't? Yes, I will. You don't know me. Don't pretend to think you know what I'm going to do. And he, of course, is trying to distract her. And she even calls him on it. He's like, no, you're not. If you were going to jump, you would have already. And she's like, go away, you're distracting me. And to Jack's point, it's like, hey, look, I can't just go away, all right? I'm too involved now. And is that kind of like the thing? Like, if you, I thought there's like a lot, there's a Seinfeld episode um, about the characters on Seinfeld witnessing someone being mugged by their car and they just stood there and took a video and didn't do anything. Granted, they were in a small town. And I'm wondering if that kind of applies here. Well, you know what I mean. I mean, this is 1912. That was like 1996, seven or eight. And I'm just thinking the whole, like, if someone's in trouble, you have to at least try to help them, whether it's to talk them down from, you know, taking their own life, or whatever the situation may be. And he also starts talking about um, how cold the water is. It's like, you don't want to do that. Look, I grew up in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, and I'm telling you, they have some of the coldest winters around there. I went ice fishing once with my dad, and I fell through the ice, and I'm telling you, water like that down there... It's cold. And it hits you like a... And he starts describing it like... It hits you like a thousand knives stabbing you, stabbing you all over your body. And you can't think. And it's like your body goes... Not, like Almost like your body's starting to shut down and everything like that. And he's like, the only thing you can think about is the pain that you're feeling at that moment. And just thinking of his wording and everything, and this what happens later, and just like, wow. And of course, he's trying to describe ice fishing to her. She's like, I know what ice fishing is. And he just looks at her like, uh, okay. <laughs> From the looks of you, you look like an indoor girl. I mean, she is dressed very impeccably. And not to mention, I want to talk about this dress real quick that she's wearing. It's got a lot of beads on a lot of spangles, a little little beat it's which is going to create you know a problem in a hot second when you know spoiler he does help her back over the railing i don't know why i thought that she had just stepped on the railing to get to go over it and then jack appears but no she actually full-on 
stepped on the railing, turned her body around so her hands are behind her, gripping the railing. Like she's ready to do it. She's ready to just throw her body into the water. And I'm just thinking of the time that I went ice fishing with my dad, and we were just walking back. And of course, it's winter. I had my snow suit, my snow pants on, but it still was very cold. I was just walking along. It was probably like maybe eight or nine at the time, and I was just walking, not really paying attention. There are like ice fishing holes all over this lake, and I just, I went, my foot my leg went down into an ice hole and I'm like, help me, help me. And I just remember like my dad cranking up the heat in the truck and I'm just like right by the stick shift, like trying to get my leg warm. <laughs> and I can definitely understand me like that. <laughs> just, But he fell through, the, his whole body went through the ice. He's just trying to tell her about, you know, the temperature of the water is freezing probably a few degrees over. And how, look, you don't want to do this. He even says, look, you jump, I jump, all right? I can't just pretend that I didn't see this because I'm too involved now. And he starts untying his shoes. Like, he's actually like, you jump in there. I'm jumping over this railing to go and get you. So I'm kind of hoping you will uh, save me from having to do that and just get back over the railing yourself. So, and she decides to like oh yeah yeah this really probably isn't what I should be doing you know in her mind it's like he does make a good point and he goes to help her and she introduces herself well he says I'm Jack Dawson and she says Rose DeWitt Bucator and of course it's like well I gotta have you write that one down for me <laughs> and as soon as she puts her foot uh, back on that railing, you see those beads and spangles are gonna be of that uh, that are on that dress are gonna create a problem because her foot slips, and she the momentum kind of pulls her down. Meanwhile, Jack's got her hand in his, and it's like these one of these things like you think like oh he can lift her up. It's like if someone's falling, and you think about it, Rose is like less than 100 pounds. He's got to be, well, maybe a little over. Anyway, you always see it's like someone trying to rescue someone, but it's like, I can help you, but you have to help me. You got to like do some of the work. Because it's like, mind you, he's pulling her over a railing. And she's doing her best, but... She starts sinking lower and lower, and she's like, help, help me. And it's like, he's right there. And the thing that sucks about this is the fact that she's shouting like she's being attacked by somebody. And her shouts, of course, carry down the length of the ship, alerting the White Star Line, which is probably, like, security. And he finally gets her over the railing, and, of course, they both topple to the ground. Meanwhile, as you saw him undoing his shoes so he could dive in. That's exactly what they're going to see. They're going to see Rose just trembling in, in fear, probably from the idea that she was going to slip and fall, and that's how she was going to die, not by suicide, but by falling into the water. I mean, after he gave her that whole story about how cold the water is, I'm sure that changed her mind. 
And, of course, they think that he attempted to sexually assault her. And they're like, you stay right there. You don't move. And then we see Jack getting handcuffed. And Cal just screaming in his face, like, "How? who, who do you think you are? Don't you know who I am? The fact that you thought you could put your hands on my fiance. He's like, look at me, you piece of filth. And Jack's kind of looking over at Rose, like, um, are you going to... Like, help me out here. <laughs> I really don't want to be arrested. So she finally, of course, comes up with a story like, Mr. Dawson saved me. I wanted to get a closer look at the propellers, and I slipped. And, of course, the old men are all, oh, you know what they say, ladies and electromechanics, they don't mix. Like, let's just chalk it up to... <laughs> of course, uh, Cal's... Uh, Bodyguard for Rose mentions to Jack, Huh, interesting that you had time to undo your shoes and take them off the amount of time it took to save her. Uh-huh. Basically, he's calling bullshit on Rose's story. Like, I don't think you saved her at all. I think you actually attacked her. Like, this guy's piece of shit. I don't like this guy. There is a notice in red with white lettering that says, Notice. It's to the left of Rose when she's on the other side of the railing. It says, this vessel has triple screws. Keep clear of blades. Yes, because the blades that turn, that move the ship, they're right below where she's standing. If anything, if she falls into that water and she gets pulled into that suction, she's going to be getting cut up by them blades. Which makes me think of that horse on that ship in the movie The Ring. Ugh. like how Rose comes to... Jack's aid because he's about ready you know he's already got his hand, hands behind him in handcuffs and she's just saying no Mr. Dawson saved my life and then of course Cal's like well he's a hero then let's invite him to dinner and, you know as a way to thank him and of course before that Cal offers to give him like 20 bucks and Rose is like, oh, really? Is that the going rate for saving the, the woman that you love? And then Cal's like, oh, Rose is displeased. What to do? Oh, uh, come to dinner and we'll celebrate your uh, heroship or something. It's a way to say thank you. So, of course, we get Cal bringing Rose the heart of the ocean necklace. And how he says, there's nothing in this world that I would deny you. The only thing is, he wants her to open up to him and open up her heart to him. So I'm guessing that Cal's gonna be at least in his 20s, probably the same age. Jack's gotta be, I'd say, i put Jack probably around maybe 1920. I'm gonna say, I bet anything, Cal's probably 24, 25. And even though we see Rose, we see her as an adult this is the vibe that we she kind of gives off but at the heart of the matter at the end of the day she is still 17 i know that women married young back then but she still she doesn't even really know what she wants out of life she just knows what she doesn't want and that is cal like there's nothing that he could give her even though he says there's nothing that i could that i would deny you and he even calls them royalty when he puts that necklace around her neck, saying it was worn by Louis XVI. And when I think Louis XVI, I think of the man in the Iron Mask. 
that is to me that's my reference for that is Leonardo DiCaprio as the man in the iron mask um one day I would like to get to that movie I, I don't see it being this year but um maybe sometime in 2021 I'll go down the Leo terrain and do some of his early works and you know the man in the iron mask maybe the I don't know about the beach. There are some scenes in there that are just... But anyway, let's get back to Titanic. Yeah, he just wants her to let him in. Like, I don't think it's so much the emotional side. I think it's maybe even the physical side as well. I'm sure she sees that necklace as, like... Oh, he's got me on a leash now, or something like that, to that effect. Or, like, a choke chain. I don't even think they've officially announced the engagement. They're gonna have a- well, maybe they have, and they're gonna have, a, like, a party or something after this. So we do get a little bit of backstory on Jack. He says he's been on his own since he was 15, since his parents died. Okay, so I guess that would make sense that there would be no reason for her to go back, like, to visit Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, because he doesn't have anybody there. He's got no brothers, no sisters, no parents, no close kin in that part of the country. I don't even, you know, his parents' parents, I'm sure they're not around. So he's pretty much, if you wanted to call him an orphan, he's just kind of doing what he has to do to survive. So you can definitely tell their class differences. She came from money, and he, of course, hasn't come from money. So they view the world differently. I love how Jack refers to himself as a tumbleweed blowing in the wind, just kind of going where the wind takes me. So Jack tells her, well, we've talked about the weather, we've talked about where I've grown up, we walked around a mile around the deck here, and... You still haven't told me why you sought me out and decided to hang out with me when you, like, could be hanging out with your fiancé or your mother. And she wants to thank him for pretty much saving her life. And just, you know, the discretion, keeping it on the DL, the, um, the actual details of how everything went down so that way. She kind of pretty much saved his ass from being arrested. And she's kind of like, you probably want to know the details of why I was hanging off the back of that ship. I, I'm sure you look at me and you're like, oh, poor little rich girl. What does she really know about misery? And now he's like, no, he actually says, I'm just kind of curious why you're hanging off the back of the ship to begin with. Like something clearly must have happened to put you in that frame of mind of thinking to want to end your life. Oh, no, actually, the words that he puts it makes it that much better. He's like, I was actually thinking what could have happened to this girl to make her think she had no way out. And this is, I think, where Rose delves into it's basically everything, the wedding invitation, just how many people are going to be there, and just she pretty much lets it be known that it's, everything's just moving so fast. I mean, she's 17 years old, and then her... She's going to marry this guy. Her life's going to be laid out in front of her. And it almost in a way she's saying, I don't get a say in this. And what I want with my, my life doesn't matter. My life is pretty much going to be my husband. Okay, so she does have the engagement ring as she shows it to Jack. He's like, whoa, look at that thing. You would have went straight to the bottom if you had jumped. 500 people, guys. 500 people 
all the creme de la creme of society, Philadelphia society, is going to be at this wedding. And she, the way that she puts how she's feeling, she's like, it's like I'm standing in the middle of a room, I'm screaming my lungs out, and nobody even bothers to look up. In a way, it's almost like no one's saying, hey, Rose, what do you want? Do you really, do you really want this for yourself? Is this the life that you want? It's like, you don't get to say we're you're doing this to secure not only your future but your mother's future. She's not thinking of her daughter and what her daughter wants. She's thinking of what's best for her and for them saving their good name. Now, Jack asks a question that Rose, of course, finds very rude. And probably back for 1912, it was pretty forthright to ask the question that he asks. Do you love him? And she's like, excuse me? And he's like, do you love him? And she's like, well, you're being very rude. And he's like, well, look, it's a simple question. Do you love the guy or not? And she's pretty much like, that's not your business. And she pretty much tells him, we should just go our separate ways. You shouldn't even be up here. You should go back to your end of the deck. And, of course, he's like, oh, well, well, now who's being rude? So she decides to go and look at that leather binder that he's been carrying around with him. And she's, like, flipping, like, oh, wow, what are you, an artist or something? He's like, or something, yeah. So they sit down and they look at it together and she sees, you know, some of, when we saw him drawing the father and daughter by the railing, we see sketches of him probably when he was like in France or, or Paris or wherever, sketching girls, you know, French girls who from home alone that I've gotten, the French babes don't shave their pits because, you know, they got like, you know, pit hair and whatever. And I mean, girls just, just not something you want to do I mean whatever if you want to have pit hair I say go for it but um she's looking and she notices like there's a few of this one girl like oh you must have had a love affair with her because there's a lot of you know pictures of her he's like oh no no she just had really great hands I don't know if it means like to be like a sexual thing with that. It's more like he was taken by the beauty of her hands. Another, throw out another Seinfeld reference with uh, this one photographer thinking George Costanza had like the most amazing, delicate hands and he wanted to photograph them. And then George ends up burning his hands and they're all like wrapped in gauze and everything. It's like, well, you lost that. Yeah, she's like, you're being rude. You shouldn't be asking this. And this isn't a suitable conversation. Like, for 1912, it probably isn't a suitable conversation. Along with what sexual position is your favorite? <laughs> I don't know. You don't ask those things. But Jack is part of the real world here. And, of course, he's going to ask a question that he just... That's just how he is. It's like, if I want to know something, I'm going to ask. And Rose has been brought up in a society that you don't talk about. Hey, she was bringing up Dr. Freud with a big penis. <laughs> and you can't handle him asking if you love your fiancé? Come on, girl, it's a two-way street. 
<laughs> she's like, oh my gosh, this is absurd. You don't know me and I don't know you. We're not having this conversation. I'd be like, you know, the more you ignore my question, the more I'm thinking you clearly don't love this guy. Otherwise, you would have answered me with a flat out yes. It's like, you're rude and uncouth and presumptuous, and I'm leaving now. Jack, Mr. Dawson, it was nice to see you. Goodbye. <laughs> and he's all like, uh-huh, yeah, I thought you were leaving. She's like, I am leaving. And then she's like, wait a minute, this is my part of the ship. You leave. And he's like, oh, well, well, who's being rude now? I love how she's like, you are so annoying. And he just laughs at her. It's like, girl, he clearly got under her skin from the moment of their first interaction. That's Jack. He's just that way, you know? If he didn't like you, he would have let you just drop. He would have just let you do your thing. I mean, oh, he does, he actually does have a picture of a woman breastfeeding an infant. Well, that would be pretty, um, for back then, wouldn't that, not scandalous, but kind of, would they think that is of indecent? Would they be saying, cover up, cover up, we don't want to see that because your boobie's out? And she'd be like, I'm feeding my baby. It needs, the baby needs nourishment. No, they're not telling her to cover up. They're like, you feed that baby. That baby needs nourishment. Oh, these are from, because he's like, oh, they, she's like, this is exquisite work. And he's like, yeah, they didn't think of it, much of them in old Paris, so Paris. Oh, wait, wait, what's that? There, there's a date on there. It says, is that a, it says 327-12, Gaine, Paris, Jean-Louis, and Sibella, something? And she's like, oh, Paris. You do get around for a... P p and, of course, she stops herself. She's like, it's okay, you can say it. A poor person, yes. I've been called worse, trust me. But you know, He's not taking offense. I mean, that's what... She probably viewed people that were lesser than her. Like, oh, you must be poor because... Whatever. Your clothes are shabby or whatever. And it's like, he, he doesn't take offense to her. It's like, he sees her as how she's... This is just her... Now she's been brought up and raised to view people of certain classes a certain way. He even tries to turn it around and say, oh, a, a, a person of limited means. He's like, you can say it, poor person. It's okay. I won't take offense to that. He's got a thing for the nudes. He's got at least quite a few p uh, pictures of, looks like some lady who's like in a dance studio who's naked and leaning against like a ballet type pole. I'm not sure the official term for it. Also, a woman reclining naked with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. love how when someone walks by, she kind of closes the the leather binder a little bit. Like, well, I don't want to be, like, having it all splayed out. Just, hey, look at these naked pictures I'm looking at. And Jack's like, hey, that's a great thing about Paris. A lot of girls willing to take their clothes off. And the look she gives him, like, oh, okay. That's going to come back later with the whole French girl scenario. She just kind of laughs. At, okay, so here's where we get uh, the girl reclining with the armpit hair. 
surprised surprised Rose doesn't say like, oh, exquisite job here on the areola. <laughs> so yeah, she notices this woman. He's taken several, um, you know, drawn several pictures of her, and she's like, oh. You're very taken with this this girl here. You have several pictures of her. And he's like, oh, well, no. See, this, her hands kind of stand out more. A lot of focus is on the hands. And she's like, oh, well, I think you must have had a love affair with her. Oh, I love her. So she can say stuff like that. But he can't question her. It's like, come on, Rose. This is a two-way street here. And he's like, no, 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 no. I just... Her hands, or what? He's, he's a hands guy, apparently. He's he's into the hands. Oh, he was a... Or he... Uh, she was a one-legged prostitute. Interesting. He is so uncomfortable when he said she was a two-legged prostitute. I don't think it's so much the prostitute, but the one-legged. And she's, she just looks at him kind of like a little uncomfortable. And then he's like, see? And she's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I see it. <laughs> First, we get another uh, backstory on um, one of his artist renderings here. This one lady named Madame Bijou, who would go to a bar every single night where every piece of jewelry that she owned in hopes of finding her, waiting for her long-lost love. Sounds like a romance novel waiting to be written. And Rose is like, she looks at him and says, you have a gift, Jack. You see people. And he looks right at her and he's like, I see you. He does. He just can see through this mask that she puts on with people. It's like he sees to the real her real self and her heart of the matter of what she wants and desires and everything and that's why he's taken upon himself that's why he's asked that's why he even asked her like do you love this guy because he clearly can see probably even with their interaction that he saw between her and cal it's like i don't think she loves him i don't think she wants this at all i think in a way some of his wording and stuff as we see later on when he's talking with her He's helping her realize and bring to the surface things she already kind of knows about herself but doesn't want to admit to herself. Because maybe she feels like if I, like, throw all this away, like, is she willing to just give everything up and, and take that risk? Like, Jack, he's a world traveler. He's just, you know, coming and going as he sees fit. He really, other than making sure he has clothes and food in his belly and what he needs to get by and stuff, he's set. He's fine with that life. When he says, I see you, and she's like, and? Like, okay, tell me. What do you see? He's like, you wouldn't have jumped? I think, honestly, he is right there. I think he, she was just waiting, hoping maybe somebody would actually see her. Like, see inside of her. And care enough to say, don't do it. You are worth so much more. So we see Ruth with a couple other ladies, and they're like, oh, there's that vulgar Mary, there's that vulgar Miss Brown. Let's get up so she doesn't have tea with us. 
So they're kind of basically snubbing her. And, oh, she's like, oh, I hope I was going to catch you at tea. And they're like, oh, well, you missed it. Excuse us, we're going to go take a walk up on deck. And she's like, hey, that's cool. I got to catch up on my gossip anyway. I'll tell you along. She invites herself. She got no qualms. She gives no fucks. Like, I'm doing this. I'm I'm just going up there with you. She knows. She knows people are saying shit about her. She don't care. It's like, fuck y'all. Okay, so this is going to become a problem. Ismay's all about show and wanting to make the papers. Like, hey, the press knows the size of Titanic. Now I want them to marvel at her speed. He's all like, we're supposed to be in on a certain day. What if we get there like a day earlier? Wouldn't that be amazing? Because he's like, oh, the last four boilers haven't been lit yet. And of course the camera's like, well, I don't see a need to do that. We're making good time. And the guy's like, no. The press already knows about the size of Titanic. Oh, let's, like, test out her speed. Let's get there a day earlier than we said we are going to do. That would really make the papers. Like, dude, you're going to make the papers for an entirely different reason. This guy has got his head up his ass. He's all about... He should get together with Ruth because they are all about image and popularity and all that shit basically wants to just stay in the papers. Like, heaven forbid something else comes along that blows the news of Titanic out of the water. So, yeah, like I said, Ismay's all about headlines. The captain's like, I don't want to push the engines until they've been properly run in. Like, kind of ease them in. Like, if you push them too hard, what if something breaks? And then you're fucked, basically. So, yeah, I like this scene here with Jack and Rose just kind of hanging out on the deck, on the railing. We got the sun looking glorious, beautiful, like, early sunset. And he's kind of going through other things that he's done. He says, after that, I worked on a squid boat in Monterey. He also says he went to Los Angeles. He, yeah, went to Los Angeles to Santa Monica to do portraits for 10 cents apiece. Oh, the Santa Monica Pier. Cool. So this is getting around, man. Ew, getting around. That's awesome. I wonder what Los Angeles and Santa Monica, I've never been to either, but I wonder what they were like in, in 1912. And Rose is so intrigued by this. She's Jack's you know, carefree lifestyle of just going where, like, why can't I be like you? Just head out for the horizon whenever I feel like it. And I love her adventurous spirit. Like, she's like, hey, say we go there one day to that pier. Only if we just talk about it. He's like, no, no, we'll do it. Definitely. Girl, we gotta get you out. We gotta get you out and experience and stuff. You've been sheltered. He's like, we'll drink cheap beer, ride on the roller coaster till we throw up. We'll ride horses on the beach in the surf. And, of course, he's like, but none of that side saddle stuff, you know, you gotta, you gotta do it like a real lady, of course, you know. And she's like, oh, really? Like, so one leg on each side. It's, oh, yeah, yeah. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do this right. We're gonna do it the right way. Oh, he says, yeah, you gotta do it like a real cowboy. None of the side saddle stuff. She, oh, really? Like uh, one leg on each side? Go, oh, yeah. And she's like, can you show me? He's like, yeah, sure, if you like. And she's like, teach me to ride like a man. He's like, and talk like a man. And she's like, and spit like a man. 
And he's like, oh, yeah, we can do that right here. I want to play this clip because I love her adventure spirit coming out and just talking with Jack and just talking about, oh, we're going to do this. And even if we just talk about it, just your mind just just going and just thinking all the fun things because he's probably done some of that stuff already. It's like, girl, we got to get you out and experiencing life. Well, after that, I worked on a squid boat in Monterey. Then I went down to Los Angeles to the pier in Santa Monica and started doing portraits there for 10 cents a piece. <laughs> Why can't I be like you, Jack? Just head out to the horizon whenever I feel like it. See, we'll go there sometime to that pier. Even if we only ever just talk about you. No, we'll do it. Cheap beer. We'll ride on the roller coaster till we grow up. <laughs> then we'll ride horses on the beach, right in the surf. Now, you'll have to do it like a real cowboy. None of that side saddle stuff. You mean one leg on each side? Yeah. Can you show me? Sure. If you like. <laughs> Teach me to ride like a man. Chew tobacco like a man. Oh, chew tobacco, gotcha. Like a man. What, did he teach you that finishing school? No. <laughs> finishing school. Come on, I'll show you. Let's do it. Come on. I'll show you how. Come on. Jack. Do it. It's going to be great. No, wait, Jack. On. She's no, like, Jack. oh my gosh, it's Chelsea. Sure. Watch closely. Whoa. It's disgusting. All right, your turn. <laughs> okay, that was Hit terrible. Up. Come on, you really got to hock it back, you know? Get some leverage to it. Use your arms. Get that loogie. There we go. Those two are like, what? Eh. Yeah, you gotta get some aim on that. Oh, he's got a big old lava spit just on his chin. <laughs> The one who saved my life. Charmed, I'm sure. <sighs> Shut up, bitch. <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, you got a little something the right there. were gracious and curious <laughs> about the man who saved my life. My mother looked at him like an insect. A dangerous insect, which must be squashed quickly. Well, Jack, sounds like you're a good man to have around in a sticky spot. <laughs> Clearly not. He needs you to help him, Molly. Well, you're about to go into the snake pit. <laughs> what are you planning to wear? Oh, no, no, no. That, that won't do. I figured. Come on. Yeah, you let old Molly help you out. I was right. <laughs> you and my son are just about the same size. Close. <laughs> you shine up like a new pen. So, yeah, when Rose says, I want to learn how to spit like a man, yeah, she does have a southern accent. And <laughs> Jack's like, yeah, I mean, well, I can show you that right now. And he's, like, kind of pulling on her arm. She's like, Jack, no, Jack, no. Like, Come on, go on. 
So they go to the railing, and he's like, he's kind of like arching his neck, you know, trying to get that that um, spit and loogie phlegm that he needs to like really get a good, you know, if you want to get a good spit, you make sure you got a lot of like saliva, phlegmy, whatever lug up, so that way you can get it. And of course, hers is just like, like he's like. Okay, that was horrible. Um, it's like, no, you gotta, like, arch your neck. And the man and woman that are, like, just off to the side are looking at them. And you want to know what this reminds me of? If you're a Little House on the Prairie fan, remember the pilot movie where we meet, Miss, we meet Mr. Edwards and <laughs> he's teaching Laura how to spit? Of course, she is, like, more than happy to, like, yeah, I want to be like Mr. Edwards. But every time she goes to try to spit, Caroline always is like, Laura, what are you doing? Don't do that. So, sure, of course, just as they're spitting and all that fun stuff, who comes rolling down the, the death way? Her mother and two of her ladies, tea lady, tea friends, and you got course miss molly brown and they turn around rose introduces jack dawson her mother is of course not impressed like this is the guy that was teaching my 17 year old daughter how to spit uh-huh so he's gonna come to dinner they all leave. Like, I'll see you later at dinner, Jack. And, of course, Miss Molly Brown is there. Like, son, son, ex like, trying to get his attention because he's all, like, checking out Rose walking, you know. And she finally gets his attention. She's like, oh, what? And Molly's like, do you have the slightest inclination of what you're doing? And he's like, huh? And she's like, yeah, I figured as much. What are you planning to wear? And he's just kind of like, like this is what I got on. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're about ready to go into the snake pit. Come with me. And she gives him a really great looking suit jacket and all that flair. Apparently her son and Jack are the same size. So that's pretty cool. And now we're going to get to the dinner, and oh my gosh, does both Ruth and Cal just really start grilling Jack with questions that they figure is just going to embarrass him in front of everybody. And he kind of sees that, and even Molly's just kind of looking like, oh, you got to be shitting me with this. But... But Jack is all like, hey, I, there is no shame in my game, basically. His attitude is like, look, I do what I do. I, I got my um, place here on Titanic through a lucky hand of, uh, lucky hand of cards. <laughs> of course, yeah, his, uh, Rose's mother's like, oh, you find that sort of life appealing, do you? <sighs> Fuck you, bitch. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I do. And he's like, look, I got some blank papers in my uh, leather binder. I got some, uh, you know, pencils. I got breath in my lungs, all that good stuff. He's fine. He's got no, like I said, he's got no shame in his game. That's how he lives his life. And no amount of 
Ruth and Cal laying into him and trying to embarrass him. So you can try all you want, but I'm not going to sit here and be embarrassed of how I live my life and the way I live my life. So, yeah. Of course, before we get to said dinner, Jack is just kind of taking everything in. He's walking down the steps, just kind of taking in the uh, the atmosphere, ladies on their the arms of their men. So while Jack's at the bottom of the stairs, he's waiting for Rose, and he's just kind of watching the guys, their postures, and how they're handling themselves. And Jack's kind of trying to stand up a little straighter, put a hand behind his, his back and all that, and just be really is proper and try to fit in with just how everyone else is doing. This is kind of his first rodeo here with this. And he doesn't want to make himself look like a fool in front of Rose, which, I mean, she's not that a care. I mean, the fact that he's, he's dressed up, that's just amazing. And, of course, her dress just looks gorgeous. Like, takes his breath away. And I love how when she's looking down at him before she comes down, she's just kind of watching him, like, kind of rehearsing, like, how he's going to introduce himself, pretends to shake the hand and all that. He's just kind of getting cues from these guys that are all walking around, like, okay, maybe if I do it like this, okay, yeah, that's, like, you should try that. What a dick! Cal and Ruth come down and they don't even acknowledge Jack at the foot of the stairs. Because Jack, like, puts a hand out. And Cal just, like, completely, they walk by him like he's not even there. And he's like, oh. Jack's like, well, I guess I can put my hand back down. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, there's the Countess. Okay, and here's where we get Rose at the top of the stairs. And he's just watching Jack, like, with a hand behind his back. And he's kind of shaking hands, like, in his mind, like, how he's introducing himself. And it's just kind of funny to see him kind of practicing. <laughs> I love how when he looks at her, his hair, by the way, is all completely slicked back. And he looks up at the stairs at her and just, I mean, this boy is in love. He is in love, love, love. She is a vision, an angel of beauty. Of course, when she comes down the stairs and he, of course, extends his, oops, sorry, extends his hand takes her hand, kisses it, and of course her hand is gloved, but he's like, I saw that, wait, he says like, he saw it in like a Nickelodeon, he's like, I saw it in a Nickelodeon once and I always wanted to do it, <laughs> he is so sweet and charming, and his nervousness and innocence just makes it all the more charming and appealing, you love this boy, you love this boy. He's so great. <laughs> I saw that in a Nickelodeon once and I always wanted to do it. Almost. Extraordinary. 
<laughs> you can't tell me that guy that he didn't see him there. He completely ignored him. They both did. him they just completely ignored him he was like oh my gosh mr dawson you could almost pass for a gentleman and jack's like yeah almost like more gentleman than you would ever be mr hockley of course rose has got to give jack the dirt on who's who pretty much who's going to be at the table with them so he kind of gets a little 411 um, we got a guy and, um, a lady here, Count and Countess. We got a guy who's married to someone who's 17, who's in a delicate family way. Basically, he knocked her ass up. Um, we got another couple, a lady who designs naughty lingerie, which is popular among the royals, from what, uh, <clears throat> Rose says. Of course, there's a guy there that's got a mistress and his wife's at home with the children. The Guggenheim dude. Like, ugh, great. Yeah, but it's like, hey, just so you know, here's a 411. I got the dirt on who's all going to be sharing the table with us. And I love how Molly just comes up like, hello, Jack, would you like to escort an old lady to dinner? And he's like, oh, of course, as he extends his arm. And it just like, he's like, she's like, all right, let me tell you. How are you going to do this? You walk in there, pretend you own a gold mine, and you are in the club. Yeah. So let's get to this dinner where apparently Jack is going to be roasted by both Ruth and Cal, of course. Are you of the Boston Dawsons? <laughs> no, the Chippewa Falls Dawsons, actually. He was like, oh, yeah, I've never heard of them. He must have been nervous, but he never faltered. They assumed he was one of them. Heir to a railroad fortune, perhaps. New money, obviously, but still a member of the club. Mother, of course, could always be counted upon. <laughs> Tell us of the accommodations in steerage, Mr. Dawson. I hear they're quite good on this ship. Best I've seen, ma'am. Hardly any rats. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Dawson is joining us from the third class. He was of some assistance to my fiance. It turns out that Mr. Dawson is quite a fine artist. 
He was kind enough to show me some of his work today. Rose and I differ somewhat in our definition of fine art. Not to impugn your work, sir. <coughs> oh, God. So much silverware. Just start from the outside and work your way in. He knows every rivet in that, don't you, Thomas? Yes. Your ship is a wonder, Mr. Andrews, truly. Thank you, Rose. Ew. How do you take the caviar, sir? No caviar for me, thanks. Never did like it much. Yeah, it's nasty. I wouldn't eat it either. And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? None of your well, business. Well, right now, my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place. You know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here in a lucky-handed poker. Oh, yeah. A very lucky hand. All life is a game of luck. <laughs> a real man makes his own luck. Right, Dawson? Mm. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? <sighs> Shut up, Ruth. Well, yes, ma'am, I do. <coughs> I mean, got everything I need right here with me. Got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet. Where I'm gonna wind up. Just the other night I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world having champagne with you fine people. I'll take some of that. I figure life's a gift, and I don't intend on wasting it. You never know what hand you're gonna get dealt next. You learn to take life as it comes at you. Oh, you go, Cal. To make each day count. Yes. Well said, Jack. Yeah, yeah. To make an account. To make an account. Yeah, Ruth gets really into like, oh, tell me about the accommodations in Steridge. And Jack's like, yeah, hardly any rats. <laughs> and then she's all like, what, what do you do for a living? And he's like, oh, yeah, I work my way from place to place doing this and that and Rose mentions how he's an artist and Cal's like oh well Rose and I differ in what we see as and value as art and not to impugn your work and of course Jack's like oh, no it's whatever basically <laughs> I love how when Jack like looks down at the forks on one side the spoons on the other knives and it's like am I supposed to use all of these because Molly's like right on his right side and she's like, hey, just uh, start from the outside and work your way in. <laughs> and I love how Jack says life is kind of like a game of luck in a way. And how life is a gift. And how you shouldn't waste it. And he also brings up the fact, and Cal's all like, well... A man makes a uh, man makes his own luck, and I'm just thinking of um, the wording that Jack is using, just kind of going into what's gonna happen that we learn later on towards the end of the movie. And I'm just thinking, oh boy, you are gonna fall so hard, and it's gonna be a well-deserved ending for Cal. We know this. And when Ruth is all like, oh, you find that sort of existence appealing, do you? And the glare that Molly gives her across the table is like, excuse me, bitch. Who are you? 
he's like, I pretty much go from town to town, you know, tram steamers and such and whatnot, and just making his own way, you know, breath in my air, breath in my lungs, air in my lungs, some blank sheets of paper. He's like, life's a gift, and I don't intend on wasting it. He's like, after, you know, my uh, address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor, so whatever he wants to, uh, whatever he wants to send me next, it's up to him. Of course, we can always rely on Molly to provide the comedic relief and the entertainment for the table. And she's talking about her husband who came home drunk one night, one night, and I guess he had hidden all of his money in the stove, and he came home drunk as a skunk and decided to light a fire. It's like he forgot the money within the stove. Like, oh shit! <laughs> and everybody's just laughing. <laughs> Oh, she hid the money in the stove. Okay, and then he comes home drunk as a skunk and decides to light a fire. Shit. So Rose kind of whispers across the table to Jack, like, all right, next is going to be branding cigars and celebrating in the smoking room. And, of course, that's what one of the old men says. Hey, I'd say us gentlemen should go and uh, have some cigars and celebrate in the smoking branding, celebrate in the smoking room. <laughs> oh, because she's like, yeah, next they're going to talk about being masters of the universe with, you know, their businesses and their money. And the guy's like, hey, Dawson, you want to come with us? I mean, you don't really want to stay here with the ladies now, do you? And, of course, they go, no, 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 I guess I should get back to my uh, hole in the ground in third class. Um... He, of course, says, it's been a pleasure, Molly, thank you. He goes over to Rose, takes her hand, goes to kiss it, of course, slips some uh, piece of paper in. She looks at it when no one's looking, because um, Cal's like, hey, you want to go back to your room? And she's like, no, 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 stay here. So she looks at the slip of paper and says, meet, it says, meet me at the clock. So she goes to the clock. He turns around and says, hey. You want to go to a real party? And we are down below the deck steerage. We are having a fucking party. There's music. There's dancing. There's drinking. There's smoking. There's, it's, 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 this tops any kind of party that first class could ever throw in their lives because everyone's coming together of different, you know, races and nationalities and everyone's just having a good time. They're having a fun time. It's like, Rose, you need to come, I mean, Jack shared a little bit of his life and how he lives his life. And now you're just going to see that everyone else that shares that same similar philosophy, it's not always going to be about money and class. It's going to be about living your best life and also celebrating your best life, which is the one that you're currently living. Yeah, he's going to teach her a thing or two. He's taught her some stuff already. But, yeah, she's going to have a raving good time. Oh, no, it, it, the slip of paper says, make it count, meet me at the clock. I love how Fabrizio is dancing with this lady. He's like, hey, is it okay if I put my hand here? You know, he's asking permission, and it's just, it's sweet. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, she ain't no first class lady. So we see Jack dancing with a girl that will see her name is Cora. And, of course, Rose is down there. Clearly, there's a language barrier. There's a guy who's, like, trying to talk to her. And she's like, what? What? I can't hear you. What? Because, she, of course, it's not that she is so loud in there, but she can't understand him due to the language barrier. Oh, she just says, I can't understand you. Like, puts a hand to her ear. Yeah, she's sipping a beer. 
at a real party. Apparently someone can't handle their liquor because someone just crashed into a table. <laughs> Shit. It's basically like one big bar thing scene. <laughs> of course, I mean, the guy's fine. I mean, a couple guys, like, lift him up and hand him a beer. It's like, it's fine. I mean, this isn't her scene normally. It's like, oh my gosh, is that guy okay? Oh, he's okay. They're lifting it up. They're giving him a beer. He's good. <laughs> so I'm going to play the scene here where, uh, Jack and Rose dance together for the first time. Jack has been dancing with Cora like, alright, I'm gonna dance with her now. And of course you see Cora like all getting all jelly, like, um. And I like how Jack's like, you're still my best girl, Cora. And she smiles. <laughs> I'm gonna dance with her now, alright? Come on. Come on. Come with me. Jack! Jack, wait! I can't do this. We're gonna have to get a little bit closer. Like this. <laughs> You're still my best girl, Cora. <laughs> I don't know the steps. Neither do I. Just go with me. <laughs> don't think. We gotta go back upstairs to the gentleman's room where everyone's smoking and drinking the brandy and talking about Rockefeller and this and that and everything in between that we don't really care about. So let's go back down below to the uh, where the fun and the party is. We got Tommy and another guy having the arm wrestling competition. And of course, I think this is where Rose comes in, and she starts telling, like, "Oh, you think you're a big, strong man, do you?" And she takes a cigarette out of his mouth, and I'm trying to think, what is she doing? Like trying to like hold her breath, or something like hold the smoke in, as she like stands on her tiptoes, and everyone just looks at her like, "Whoa, look at this girl! She knows how to party." <laughs> that thing. What? You think a first class girl can't drink? <laughs> Get out of here. You alright? <laughs> oh, two out of three, two out of three. Hey, you're the man, you're the man. So, 
think you're big tough men? <laughs> no. Let's see you do this. What are you gonna do, girl? Hold this for me, Jack. Hold it up. Whoa, she's on her pistol. On her big I like that Rosa's proving, like, I'm not just a first-class girl in high society. I can get down and have fun and have a good time. <laughs> I think that's what she's out to prove. And Jack is like, yeah, I, I see that, definitely. So, while they're dancing, we see old bodyguard, security guard, I don't even know what this guy's name is, and I frankly don't care, because he's just going to report back to Cal. Like, oh yeah, your fiancé, she wasn't upstairs sleeping, or reading, or staring at her um, Monet or Picasso paintings. She was below deck, having a great time with the guy who saved her life. So, let's get to the aftermath, uh, or the confrontation with Cal and Rose. Because, of course, she's playing it off. Like, oh, no, I just, you know, turned in early. And, you know, I was exhausted. And he's like, oh, really? Because it seemed like your excursion below deck was, uh... You didn't too, look too exhausted dancing with that guy. And mind you, this is 1912. She's engaged to be married. And he's like, I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to do that. You're not going to see that guy again. And she's like, uh, excuse me, I'm not your employee. I'm your fiancé and almost your wife. And he just flips the table and says, yes, you are. You are my wife. And he even says, in practice and if not also by law, so you're going to honor me, you're going to honor me the way a wife honors a husband. And he gets, he gets right in her face. I think he's got too much eyeliner on. I had hoped you would come to me last night. Why? I was tired. Your exertions below decks were no doubt exhausting. <laughs> I see you had that undertaker of a manservant follow me. How typical. You will never behave like that again, Rose. Do you understand? I'm not a foreman in one of your mills that you can command. I'm your fiance. Fiance. I'm fiance. Yes, you are. My wife in practice, if not yet by law, so you will honor me. You will honor me the way a wife is required to honor a husband, because I will not be made out of fool, Rose. Is this in any way unclear? No. Good. Me. What a dick! Oh, I'm sorry. 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 Oh, I'm sorry.
girl. Let me help you. It's all right, miss. Calm down. It's all right. It's over. A curse of as if hearing it from Cal isn't enough. Now she's going to be reprimanded by her mother because, of course, her mother heard about this. And she's going to forbid Rose to see Jack ever again. Like, what's the deal here? I got you a fine match with Mr. Cal Hockley, and you're going to ruin everything by hanging out with this guy that, this boy that saved your life. If you think about it, yeah, like I said before, it's all about them starting over because her f father died, Ruth's husband passed away, and all he left them was a good name followed by a bunch of bad debts and investments that went south. And she's like, what do you want me to, you want to see me working as a seamstress in some factory or all of our stuff sold at auction? She goes on to say, we're women, you know, Ruth says. Our choices are never easy. Well, if you think about it, your choices aren't really yours. You don't get a choice in life. Your husband makes all your decisions for you. And Rose, you see it in her. She doesn't want that life. She doesn't want Cal. And half the time when I was watching this girl, I'm like, if Ruth wants to so badly, why doesn't she just marry Cal? Because he don't want her old ass. And I tell, think an old, it's like, she's got to be at least probably my age, like 37 going on 38. I don't, I don't know. Just her day. That's her name. What a sweetheart. Oh, she laughed. You are not to see that boy again. Do you understand me? Rose? I forbid it. Good for oh, you. stop it, Mother. You'll give yourself a nosebleed. This is not a game. Our situation is precarious. You know the money's gone. Of course I know it's gone. You remind me every day. Your father left us nothing but a legacy of bad debts hidden by a good name. That name is the only card we have to play. I don't understand you. It is a fine match with Hockley. It will ensure our survival. Our survival? How can you put this on my shoulders? <laughs> Why are you being so selfish? I'm being selfish. Yeah, she's calling you out. Do you want to see me working as a seamstress? That's what you gotta do. Is that what you want? You have, like, no eyebrows. To see all really? fine things sold at auction. Our memories scattered to the winds. It's so unfair. <coughs> of course it's unfair. We're women. Our choices are never easy. Please don't touch me. So yeah, Ruth comes in and she takes over lacing up Rose's corset. 
and tells Rose that she's not going to see Jack again. In fact, she forbids it that she sees him again. And Rose gets nippy here. She's like, oh, mother, stop before you give yourself a nosebleed. And her mother, like, whips her around so fast. Like, uh, do you think this is a game? And then she she goes on to say, like, your father left us a legacy of bad debts hidden by a good name. And that name is the only card we have. We have to play with. And this match with Hockley will secure our survival. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the fact that she even's like, oh, the money's all gone. I'm like, okay, it couldn't have just been swallowed up by trying to pay off your late husband's debts. Doesn't look like you're suffering in the wardrobe department. You can't tell me Cal is purchasing your clothes for you. I get it. This is the time period that they're living in. And we see Ruth Clear's day. All she cares about is the image that she projects and the money provides. Like, her idea of worst comes to worst is working as a seamstress in some factory, having all of our, our possessions sold at auction. What? It's like, what will people say about us then? That's all she gives a shit about is the image. And Rose is like, it's so unfair. And that's where Ruth's like, yes, we're women. Life isn't supposed to be fair for us. But now I think it's into Rose's head because she's even like, why are you putting all of this on my shoulders? Everything that happens going forward is all going to be put onto me. That's a lot. And mind you, again, she's 17. I know things were different for 17-year-olds back then, but still, that is a lot to put on Rose's shoulders to have her marry a man she doesn't love so just that way you're financially secure for the rest of your life. I'm like, give me poverty, but give me the free will and choice to love who I want to love and live the life I want to live. At the end of the day, and when you die, you'll die knowing you lived your best life and did what you wanted to do. So they're all in church. We see Jack coming down to, of course, the first class area where they're having church service. And we have him trying to get go into the church service while it's going on to talk to Rose. It's like, first of all, you could wait until it's done. You've had no problem trying to see Rose up to this point. And what is so urgent that you need to speak to her right this second and and interrupt this church service? And the, the White Star Line employee's like, sir, sir, you can't be down here. Sir, you can't be down here. And of course... Cal's bodyguard, security guard, whatever you want to call him, Secret Service, I don't know. Um, He sees this, he goes out there, it's like, he's going to offer Jack money to say, hey, you hold a third class ticket, your place here is no longer appropriate, and Miss DeWitt Bucator and Mr. Hockley appreciate what you've done in saving her life, but your presence, again, is no longer appropriate here. So please go on your way. And of course, that's where the employee takes over and says, alright, alright, that's enough. You can leave now. So, Jack's like, he's not done. It's like, 
No, I have to see her. This is important. So, he sees Rose is getting a tour of the ship via Mr. Andrews. He grabs a coat that's just hanging on a lounge chair with a hat, puts it on so that way he can look like a first-class passenger, and then when... Ruth and Cal are distracted by Mr. Andrews and continue on with the tour. He pulls her into what looks like an exercise room to kind of talk to her about what's going on. Like, Jack knows, you know, he's in love with this girl. And he believes, you know, that she also is starting to feel the same way about him. Developing feelings, you know, they he saved her life. They went, you know, he had dinner with her. They had a great time dancing below deck, and now he wants to offer her the world. And, of course, due to her responsibilities and having to marry Cal, she has to shut this down and break his heart. But Jack will not go quietly and will not go silently into that dark night. Or however that saying goes. Well, I'm going to go to this tour real quick before we get to Jack and Rose. Rose notices something that is going to definitely come into play later on. Because in everyone's mind, Titanic is unsinkable. Nothing's going to sink this ship. It's going to be fine. Cal even... Well, she says, I don't... It doesn't look like there's enough rowboats, you know, lifeboats for people on board. And Mr. Andrews is like, oh yeah, about half, really. Don't worry, Rose, I built you a safe ship. And Cal's like, yeah, it's a waste of deck space as it is, all these lifeboats. I can imagine how many lawsuits there would be later on saying, you weren't fully prepared in case of an accident. You may say she's unsinkable, but history proves that's not the case. It's like, you were 100% unprepared in case... An emergency happened to take care of your passengers. That would be your number one priority. And you couldn't do it because you thought that was a waste of deck space. Well, Cal thought that, really. But then again, I'm sure a bunch of other people probably thought the exact same thing. Like, oh, why do we have these lifeboats? I mean, the ship isn't going to sink. It's unsinkable. (sighs) Come on now. Yeah, um, he made, so I guess the rowboats can fit, like, another rowboat inside, and because it was deemed by others that the deck would look too, quote-unquote, cluttered, he was outvoted, so he was overruled, and, well, yeah. I want to find out about some lawsuits after this whole thing happened, because you know there's got to be a shit ton of lawsuits after what happened. And I like how he's, like, he, like, uh... With Rose's inquisitive eye, like, Rose, you miss nothing, do you? She's like, no, no, I don't. And you just see Ruth in the background, like, oh my gosh, here we go with the questions. Always with the questions. My daughter, so inquisitive, needs to know everything. Well, you can't find stuff out otherwise, am I right? Yeah. Jack, this is impossible. I can't see you. I need to talk to you. No, Jack, no. Jack, I'm engaged. I'm marrying Cal. I love Cal. Yeah, keep telling yourself that lie. Rose, you're no picnic, all right? You're a spoiled little brat even. But under that, 
You're the most amazingly astounding, wonderful girl, woman that I've ever known. And Jack, I no, no, let me try and get this out. You're you're a mate. I'm not an idiot. I know how the world works. I've got ten bucks in my pocket. I have nothing to offer you, and I know that. I understand. But I'm too involved now. You jump, I jump, remember? I can't turn away without knowing you'll be all right. That's all that I want. Well, I'm fine. I'll be fine. You are so far really? from fine, girl. Really? I don't think so. They've got you trapped, Rose. And you're gonna die if you don't break free. Maybe not right away because you're strong, but... Sooner or later, that fire that I love about you, Rose... That fire is gonna burn out. It's not up to you to save me, Jack. You're right. Only you can do that. So true. I'm going back. Leave me alone. Yeah, she does say I'm I'm marrying Cal. I'm in love with Cal. I'm like, yeah. You keep telling yourself that lie and see how long it takes for you to actually believe it. Because I don't believe it. Jack doesn't believe it. You don't believe it yourself. You don't love him. You're settling because that's when you've been told to do. And he's just saying about how look, you're no picnic rose, okay? You're a spoiled brat, even. But crazily enough, that's what I love about you. I mean, you're an, you're an amazing girl. I mean, woman, and just and I love how I mean he's saying all the things that she herself has probably been saying in her head this and thinking this whole time. Like they've got you trapped, and if you don't break away soon, it's like he's like that fire, that fire inside of you that I love about you so much is gonna burn out over time, and he's talking about. Her, that bit of rebellious side, that that need to want to 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 live, and and just be herself, is eventually just gonna that light is gonna slowly dim over time to before, eventually it's just gonna be extinguished, and she's just going to have succumbed to this is my life, this is what I've chosen, even though it's not what I want. She's going to die sad and miserable instead of satisfied and happy that she's gotten to do everything she wanted and talked about doing. And I love how Jack is kind of offering himself. He's like giving her the world or his version of her and what he can afford. He's like, look, I know the way the world works, okay? I have ten bucks in my pocket. I know I have nothing to offer you. How many songs have we listened to? How many movies and books have we watched and read where you see the guy who doesn't have anything getting the, the, the rich girl because she would rather live in poverty and be happy instead of succumbing to being wealthy and being unhappy. I'm not saying everyone that's wealthy is unhappy, but... Choose the life you want to live.
like I said, guys, we get one life in this in this world. We get one. And we're the only ones that get really get to say to, as to how we want to live it. So she pretty much just cuts Jack off there with, look, I'm marrying Cal. I really don't think you... She's like, it's not up for you to save me. Because he's like, you jump, I jump, remember? He's still holding on to that theory that as soon as he saved her, it's like, that was it for him. This girl is now his whole world in his mind. And he wants to make her happy. Because he sees she is miserable. And he's just opening her eyes to what all that she can have. And the joy and, and the laughter. And just simple, enjoyable conversations. And dancing and, and all of that. He's like, look, I'm too involved now with this. I can't let you go without knowing you're going to be okay. And she says, it's not up for you to save me. He's like, that's right. That's very true. Because only you can do that. So she says, I'm going back. Please don't try to reach out to me again. Don't try to find me. And she leaves. So now we have Rose sitting to tea with Ruth and the two ladies that she was hanging out with earlier when they decided to snub Molly Brown. Um, and she's talking about, oh, the invitations had to be sent back twice, and the bridesmaids' dresses don't even get me started on those because Rose decides she wanted lavender, and she knows that it, I detest that color. And she did it just to spite me. And mind you, Rose is just sitting there stock still, not saying anything. Because apparently this conversation is about her and she doesn't get a say or, or an opinion. Rose's gaze drifts over to a mother with a young daughter. Probably about maybe five or six years old. And the mother is just like, sit up straight. Put the napkin in your lap and all of this. Because we're having tea. And Rose is just like, oh no. That little girl's going to grow up to be like me. Without a way out in life and being able to be your own person. It's like, I, I, got, I gotta get out of here. So, of course, she finds Jack at the deck, or, huh, at the bow of the ship where he did that. I'm the king of the world! You know, he did that. And he's just, he's sad. It's like, he offered Rose the world on... On a, on a string or whatever you want to call it. You know, he offered everything he had to her. Like, I know it's not much, but I love you. And that's all that matters, basically. So, he's so happy when she comes to him.
course, now we get the next most quotable line after, I'm the king of the world! We get, I'm flying, Jack. I'm flying. (laughs) This is another thing that I'm sure couples probably tried to uh, imitate. And I'm sure that there are cruise ships out there or other ships that are like, no, 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 no. I mean, the movie's been out now for, what, 23 years at this point? So, well, 23 years this December, but still, it's like, no, 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 no. They shouldn't even have been doing that themselves, but it was 1912. Um, if, if that were the worst thing that the ship had a problem with that would have probably been the best thing. Like, if they had to worry about people trying to, like, do that on Titanic and, like, oh my gosh, don't do that, you're gonna fall over! I mean, like I said, if if they'd had that be the biggest problem and not the iceberg, they, trust me, they would have been happy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she comes out there and she's like, oh, they told me I'd find you up here. So she probably talked to Fabrizio or Tommy. And like, yeah, he's up there talking about you since you turned him down. He's really, really low right now. So she goes out there and she goes to explain and he's like, no, 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 it's okay. And he just puts, take his hand says, take my hand, close your eyes, pulls her up and says, all right. Do you trust me? And this made me think of Aladdin, the Disney movie from 1992, where he's like, hey, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And she's like, yes. And she takes his hand, and because they're trying to get away from the palace guards. But anyway, she steps up, and he's like, all right, put your arms out, just like that. And he comes up behind her. And it's just a sweet, and he's like, all right, now open your eyes. And just all she's seeing for miles, like, her entire vision of sight is just nothing but water. Like, she's like, I'm flying. I'm flying because her arms are up. That, your arms are tired. My arms just sticking them out like this are, they're already tired. (laughs) Um, but he takes her finger, you know, her hands and holds on, and then he's singing the Come Josephine in my flying machine Going up she goes Up she goes And they kiss. This is their first kiss. And it's just so sweet. And I'm like, okay, I know in 97, after my second or third time watching this movie in the theater, that I was not the only girl pretending to be Rose during that moment. Uh-huh. Yeah. How many guys probably tried to try this on their girlfriends after this movie came out? Or how many girls tried to their guys to reenact this scene? This scene actually is kind of cute. Was uh, reenacted in an episode of Fuller House with Max, DJ's... Um, middle son or second oldest and Rose DJ's ex-boyfriend's current girlfriend's daughter and it was a they didn't kiss but it was adorable oh I loved it 
Because apparently Titanic is Elias Harger's fate, who plays Max Fuller on Fuller House. It's apparently it's his favorite movie. So they wrote that into the script. I just thought that was cute. So of course, did any of you are like, oh man, we're going back to present day. I want to get back to 1912. They don't dip in and out too, too often. But towards like the middle, towards the end, they do a lot of like, okay, we got to pull it back. Because you do hear Old Rose's narration in some scenes. So I know I said that I would um, try to make it to when the iceberg hit, but it's uh, the movie, this review is already at three hours, and I did say I was going to break it into two. And I really don't want to get it to go over three hours too much, so I think we're just going to cut it off here, and then part two is going to start with Old Rose saying that was the last time Titanic ever saw daylight. So, all right, enjoy the first review, part one of the first half of the movie, and then... Part two, we're going to get to everything that comes afterwards. The the sex in the car, the iceberg, you know, hitting the, the, the ship, hitting the iceberg, basically, and the turmoil and heartbreak and everything that comes afterwards. So, all right. If you guys have any comments, thoughts, your opinions on the movie Titanic, or any little tidbits, trivia, things none of us may know, you can email me at lbomwonderyearspodcast at gmail.com. I would love to find out some more stuff. I'm not a Titanic, like, I'm not a Titanic head, like, one of those that has watched, like, all the documentaries on Titanic. I haven't even seen the original Titanic from back in the, uh, what, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, I can't remember when. But, um, there's been other variations of the movie Titanic before 1997, and I haven't seen any of them, so. Alright, on to part two! And the sex in the Oh my god, I love that scene! Oh, oh, not just that, guys! Not just that! We gotta get to the famous portrait scene where she says, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls, Jack. Oh, how could I forget that scene? Oh, it's... Because we get a snippet of his his eyes at the beginning when she's... Old Rose is looking at her her drawing. So, yeah, we got that. We got the, the sex in the car. We got the iceberg. We got everything that happens afterwards. So let's, on to part two. Enjoy part one.